0: Taxi driver, be my strength for the hour. Leave the meter running. It's rush hour, so take the streets if you wanna. Just outrun the demons, could you? He said, Allahu Akbar. I told him, don't curse me. Oh boy, boy, you need prayer guess it couldn't hurt me If it brings me to my knees, It's a bad religion
1: Oh my god, that is clearly one of the best songs. If not the best song, and my choice for the best song of That was your favorite song of this year. It's awesome, though.
2: Frank, from Frank Ocean's uh, Channel, Channel Orange. Orange. Yeah. The song called Every Bad song, Religion.
1: I, yeah, I mean, I like... Oh my God! Pyramids and thinking about you and Forrest Gump. Oh, it's hard to choose a favorite song, but that one really. I honestly didn't like Channel me. Orange as much as Nostalgia Ultra. Oh yeah, like Nostalgia Ultra is. I m- do love it. I do love Nostalgia, Nostalgia,
2: Nostalgia Ultra, Ultra is too. mostly made of songs that just blow me away. And this one, it was good, but I I didn't listen to Channel Orange all that much. Maybe mm-hmm. I should give it another try. Maybe I, I didn't said... listen listen deeply enough. Anyway, yeah. this song this isn't a podcast about music. Welcome to the Directors Club
1: Podcast.
2: End of year, best of 2012, Spooktacular. That's right, we're bringing back the Spooktacular. You thought they were all done on Halloween? You were wrong! Who <laughs> <That's>, are you? <laughs> I don't know. I'm Sven apparently. Apparently. But, uh, yeah, so this is our big end of the year show. We got, um, as we requested, we got tons of your guys' voicemails and lists of the best films of the year, Um, We're going to be getting to those later. Thank you so much. We were really just overwhelmed, not only by all the people sending in their list, but all the really kind words about our 50th episode.
1: Yes. Um, This is technically the 50th episode of uh, Director's Club, and you're going to get a little special bonus in addition to our Best of 2012 episode.
2: If it's not in your iTunes feed yet, just keep checking. It should be there soon.
1: Oh, yeah. You're going to get a double whammy. Mm -hmm. You should be excited, folks, because... Uh, in addition to revealing our favorite films of the year, you're also going to be uh, treated to a clip show of sorts.
2: America's favorite format. No one, no one doesn't like a clip show. Are you kidding me? Whenever you're watching The Simpsons reruns and it's a clip show, aren't you so excited?
1: It's a grandiose retrospective <laughs> where we just uh, play a lot of highlights, most of them amusing, many of them insightful. Just good old times from the past 50 episodes, although...
2: I'd say about half a dozen involving Gordy.
1: Yeah, there are many Gordy (laughs) clips. Many of them. One of them I would say is probably my favorite, so my favorite clip of the show in general. I, I, I will say that I probably maybe missed about 10 or 12 episodes. I didn't get through all of them. So maybe for episode 100 we'll have to have the listeners do some homework and maybe they have them choose some of their favorite movies.
2: That's fine. But that's yeah. not this episode. This episode is the best of 2012. It is. I figure before we can even get to the best of 2012, we have to reveal our list of shame. Now these are films that you're probably going to see on a lot of other people's lists, but for some reason we didn't get out and see it. They're failures. You know, it's, it's our failure. It's a failure on our part because we're failures as human beings. We apologize.
1: We can't see everything, Patrick.
2: Yeah, I know. But I I still think that we're bad people. Um, No, no, you don't. Well, wait until you hear my list. Because I have a pretty epic list of shame to the point where you might not take my top ten list seriously. And I'm okay. But I'm going to run through this real quick. Here are the films of 2012 that I did not get a chance to see. Compliance, Skyfall, Lincoln, The Grey, 21 Jump Street, Silver Linings Playbook, Amore, The Turin Horse, The Loneliest Planet, Miss Bala, Killer Joe, Indie Game The Movie, Seven Psychopaths, Killing Them Softly, Zero Dark Thirty, Anna Karenina, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, Kill List, The Raid Redemption, Haywire, The Grey, Shut Up and... Oops. Rust and Bone, Chronicle, Dread, Antiviral, Sleepwalk With Me, Life of Pi, Cosmopolis, Room 237, Detention, Shut Up and Play the Hits, This Is Not a Movie, Central Park 5, West of Memphis, and Goon. I actually, going back, I listed uh, Killer Joe, and I did get a chance to see that <laughs> today. I made this list last night. Um, didn't that like works, Killer Patrick, that, that,
1: that, that is quite the list.
2: Yeah. Well, how do I even um, call myself a film podcaster?
1: Um, no, I mean, because... Uh, uh, this podcast requires us to watch a lot of old films. You yeah. know, it, it's it's intensive That's the right. preparation. So we don't get to watch as many new films throughout the year as we'd like. That's
2: right. How many many of you motherfuckers watch Jane Campion movies? Probably less
1: than I did. Oh. And I I didn't even like them. Now that I think about it, maybe the Patrick is Crazy Award should go to his uh, dismissal of the piano. Oh, yeah. That's true. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute. Hey, Jim, what is your list of shame? It's kind of short.
2: Okay. Go for it. Because,
1: I mean, I... No,
2: I I was very uh, conclusive on mine. So go ahead and... Just read. I'm
1: really excited to see Zero Dark Thirty, because I have a feeling it might creep up on this list. I, I mean, it's creeped up on everybody's list, it seems.
2: Certainly. It just is not out where we live. And we nope. live in Chicago, so if... You if you you probably can't see it because you guys probably don't even live in a major city like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, and uh, it's. So who
2: are you to judge us?
1: You know, and if we if, Hey, beat if, it, if, if there are changes to our list, you'll be the first to know. Yeah, absolutely. So keep checking that Twitter feed.
2: We'll probably <laughs> we'll, we'll probably know before you. Okay, oh, yeah. what's your list of shame?
1: Zero Dark Thirty, The Impossible, Skyfall, which I definitely am ashamed about apparently because everybody's putting it on their list as well. The Turin House. No, it's the horse. Horse. The Turn horse. Uh, Anna Uh Rust and Bone, Life of Pi, West of Memphis, and uh, I'm kind of curious about La Miserable. Yeah, let's make some lists.
2: Um, absolutely. So those are the films you're not going to see on our list. If you're sitting there waiting, I hope they list Life of Pi. We didn't see it. Sorry.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, I went to Baker Square instead. Yeah. <laughs> got some real pie Yeah. I uh, I just found the circumference of a circle. Um, but we do have some ancillary awards, um, before we even get to our main list. Um, these are awards that we sort of thought of that, uh, aren't necessarily awarded to the best films of the year, but are just sort of about the film year in general. For example, uh, it's almost weird that we had that I, that I was able to think of this award, but I, uh, I have an award for best musical number. Um, this is honestly not a competition most years, but 2012 happened to have a lot of great musical numbers. There was Anne Hathaway in Les Miserables uh doing an amazing
1: is that how job. Did
2: you say Miserable? I no, that's how I say oh, it. Okay. I uh, I say Lay Miserab and then I go blah 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 like I'm Dracula. Um mm. uh, there's like that weird folk music scene from the Master, you know like oh. where one moment they have clothes and the next moment they yeah. don't there's um and the movie This Must be the Place with Sean Penn as uh, Robert Smith kind of stand in um there was an amazing performance of the song This Must be Place by David Byrne that just blew me away. Um, but none of those got my award. My actual award goes to the accordion scene from Holy Motors. I would
1: agree wholeheartedly.
2: If you haven't seen Holy Motors, you can go ahead and go on YouTube and watch this scene. Mm-hmm. It's not a spoiler because there's no such thing as a Holy Motors spoiler. Because people who have seen the full movie can't explain it to you. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: but the accordion scene from Holy Motors is my favorite musical number of the year. Do
1: you have an ancillary award, Jim? Um, well, I agree with that for sure. And I would say that the... Uh... Best use of a pop song in my mind, and this was kind of a given. I mean, if anybody knows what my favorite song of all time is, and uh, this movie you'll be hearing a little bit more about later, I'm sure, mm-hmm. is a, a, a song by The Buggles called Video Killed the Radio Star.
2: And what movie did that appear in? Take This Waltz. That's right. right? That was actually a very good scene. I'm not, I'm not nearly as hot on take this waltz as you are, but I, I really did enjoy that scene quite a bit.
1: Yes, I just, I just feel like that, 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 that scene really sums up what the movie is about, and really plays into the attention between the characters so well. And that song, just like, I hear it now, and I think of that scene, and I get a little melancholy. Like that song, really is so upbeat and and wonderful, and I, I've always considered it a song that cheers me up and makes me feel good. But um, now I, I, when I think of that scene, I actually get a, a, like a little sad. Which is a <laughs>
2: good indication for a pop song used well in a movie. The yeah. same way that no one listens to Stuck in the Middle with You and thinks about anything other than the res- scene of Reservoir Dogs. Definitely. Um, I actually have an award. Uh, I hope I can make this a yearly award because uh, I, this award is the Ty West Consistency Award for Most Consistence. Uh, which oh, I don't know shit. if Consistence is award. And that would be to Ty West. One of our classic, yeah, like like Lou Gehrig, like Lou Gehrig, who gets his who gets a disease named after him. Ty West is the most consistent filmmaker of our generation. (laughs) Okay, he's going to make a movie that's a throwback to the '80s, and it's going to be ponderous bullshit in which nothing happens until the end, and even what happens at the end isn't worth it. He's going to make a movie that's set in the '90s for no reason, um, called The Innkeepers, and it's going to be just bullshit where nothing happens until the very end, and what happens doesn't really pay off. Um, um,
1: stuff happens. Not really. It's... There's, there's some ghosts popping up and weird sounds. Okay. Really... Yeah. Again,
2: in the last 15 minutes. Um,
1: no, no, they, they pop up in the middle. Of the... <laughs> they don't pop. She's, she's like, you know, uh, taking her headphones and microphone and going walking around the halls and stuff. And you know, I thought it was a little creepy.
2: It was really bad. Um, but here is what really hammers home the fact that Ty West is determined to make the same goddamn movie yearly, apparently. On VHS, he did a short film. Um, one, it, VHS, the horror anthology uh, film, it's all found footage uh, stories.
1: Which I did not see.
2: Yeah, that's, it's not a good movie. He did a short film in which he tried to do a slow burn. Like this, nothing else could hammer home the fact that Ty West doesn't know it's slow burn. It's the idea that he thinks he can do one in eight minutes. Mm-hmm. So he did a short film in which nothing happens till the very end and the end is not a good payoff. So, Ty West, you are the winner of the Ty West Consistency Award for Most Consistence. Jim?
1: Wow. Yeah? I don't know if I'll ever get over your uh, <laughs> hatred of Ty West, well, but that's okay. it's a great big
2: world. We'll probably cover him one day.
1: We will. We will. Um, I will say, excuse me, I will say that first of all, I'm drinking beer, um, that I really, really was pleasantly surprised, especially upon a rewatch, because... Sometimes, you know, some movies really, you know you, you think twice about them after you see them a second time And you either, they, they, they go down in your mind Or they go up in your mind And I will say that I, I you know Seeing it in, in, in not a very crowded theater The movie Wanderlust um, You know, because it's a comedy And you uh-huh. want to see it with a crowded theater And it wasn't crowded at all Paul, Rudd, Paul Rudd's movies don't do very well at the box office in general Yeah Maybe role models did pretty well But um, I've been kind of a huge supporter of David Wayne's work in the past, um, going all the way back to Wet Hot American Summer. Absolutely. Probably your favorite comedy. I would say that the hardest maybe I've laughed all year, and I don't know if it was a strong year for comedies, but uh, there's a scene in Wonderlust involving Paul Rudd staring into the mirror trying to psych himself up to have sex with another woman um, in this commune because they're all about... Polyamory and practicing open relationships and stuff, and he gets an opportunity to sleep with an attractive woman, um, given permission by uh, Jennifer Aniston, his wife in the movie. And he just does this improvised bit with him looking in a mirror and doing all these crazy, insane things that you never see Paul Rudd do because he's kind of a straight lace guy, very subtle in his comedic approach. Where he really goes off the deep end and gets vulgar and twisted and insane and like I've never seen Paul Rudd. Act I've heard that. I've not insane. seen
2: Wanderlust, but I have heard about this scene. It's so.
1: hilarious, and it's definitely the hardest I've laughed at a movie all year. So and is
2: that the award hardest you've laughed at a movie all year? Yes,
1: that is the award the hardest I've laughed at a movie all year, and my roommate can attest to that. Like, what were you laughing at so hard in your room? And so I had to give her a copy of *Wonderlust*. Not a bad, not a bad thing to give someone. No. Um, All right, now,
2: though a lot of people have noted that there's like one of the key things that sort of shaped this year was sort of images of like revolution and social upheaval and civil unrest. Mm -hmm. Um, You see that in all sorts of films, but I honestly think the real thing that unifies this year is distracting makeup.
3: Oh, yeah. This year
2: was a. This year was bountiful uh, as far as foul, stress, distracting makeup goes. It was a, just a cornucopia of choices that were just really distracting and horrible. Cloud look,
1: Atlas. You
2: had uh, you had jo- Joseph Gordon Levitt in The Looper, um, ostensibly trying to look more like Bruce Willis. Doesn't look anything like Bruce Willis. <laughs> just looks like Joseph Gordon Levitt with shit on his face. You had uh, you may not even remember this. You had Guy Pierce in Prometheus as an old man, Ugh. like for no reason. Because Guy Pierce as the young man doesn't show up, but is all this really bad old age makeup, like the end of Six Six Feet Under. Um, the 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 lead villain in Sinister, uh, for some reason, his face was done up to look exactly like the guitarist from Slipknot. Mm-hmm. I don't know who chose that, but all I could think of when he finally showed up was, "Oh, that guy! It's the guitarist from Slipknot who's uh, chasing Ethan Hawke around." Um, <laughs> In men in Black three, the main villain is played by the one guy from Flight of the Concords i don 't like flight of the Concorde, so i don't know one from the other but it 's the one with the glasses okay. uh He has a lot of dumb makeup effects to make him look like macho man like oh, yeah, at no Jeremy point
1: Clement, it, I think yeah. there
2: we go at no point does he is he has to do comedy at no point it, is he really act at all but instead of casting a giant man to be this villain, they just cast a little guy and they put weird makeup effects on him that was really gross. You had Sean Penn in This Must Be the Place, um, which is a movie I actually kind of liked, um, despite it not being on my top ten list this year. But it, one of the biggest hurdles of that film is trying to get over Sean Penn. So, like, all all of these were just horrible choices in makeup. They're just super distracting. But nothing could top Cloud Atlas, as you mentioned, Jim.
1: Oh, my god, <laughs>
2: Cloud Atlas... Uh, is a movie I really loved. I really, really loved. But man, just every time I saw Hugo, Hugo weaving as that Nurse Ratchet kind of character, <laughs> or any time I tried, they like tried to give an epidemo fold to like a white person, like mm-hmm. trying to make him look Asian.
1: Oh, that was in bad. the corner of the eye, like no, like they just looked like alien people. Hugo weaving, Hugo weaving is as an Asian too. was bad.
2: Well, yeah. Oh no, all the makeups really bad. Um, anytime the I think Morgan Spurlock had a TV show on FX where like white people turn in like. Did makeup And then they look like Black people And then black people Did makeup And they look like White people And they like lived their lives And they're like Oh it's so different mm-hmm. Like that was what Like and, and the funny thing About the show was it, They were not convincing At all um, And that's what This was Like it was like Watching that dumb Morgan Spurlock FX show Where you were just like Okay so this person Just showed up randomly And they're I know they're black Because they look like They look ashy They look like They look like Dave Chappelle Whenever he did A white character On his yeah. show I don't know why they're doing that. I mean, I know why. Obviously, there's a reason. And I think uh, it's a fine reason. I mean, it's fine as any. It's probably the best reason uh, as far as any of these makeup effects go. But it's also the most distracting. So most distracting makeup in a a very competitive year goes to Hugo Weaving as that Nurse Ratchet-type character in Cloud Atlas.
1: Yeah, I will agree with that. It was distracting, to say the least. I mean... I I sort of give it a pass, though, because, I mean, at least it was in the more comedic of all the stories within Cloud Atlas, you know. But, like,
2: it just looked like SNL to me. Like, it was so bad that it was... Well,
1: Tom Hanks is that, in that one, well, I mean, the same story, I guess, when he first plays the guy who, uh, um, the author.
2: That was just, that was just Silly Beard. Well, was, that was just silly was bald, facial hair yeah, yeah but the, the bald was convincing like mm-hmm. it didn't look like a bald cap I mean you knew it was because it was Tom Hanks but
1: yeah just, like that
2: that was just a silly beard choice yeah. I think that a lot a, of his
1: characters felt like SNL characters to me but, yeah which makes that movie all the more remarkable for how good it is but we'll get to that is. later I'm sure oh I'm sure we will yes um, I will say that one of the highlights for me this year was seeing um, incredible cinematography on display in um, wonderful formats That might be obsolete At some point And that uh, really uh, Pertains to the Incredible films by The Anderson clan uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master Which we got to experience In beautiful, gorgeous 70mm 70 70 yeah the music box And uh, seeing Moonrise Kingdom At the Landmark Century uh, Was just like I, I mean, I I, I just relished the Moonrise
2: Kingdom being shot in sixteen mm Sixteen
1: millimeter, yeah. I mean, I just I just relished that yeah. look, the grainy look of that, more than anything. You know, I watch digitally projected.
2: Yeah, so, and I, I, that is something you, I think a lot of people may not know is that like a lot of films you will see in theaters they're mostly digital projected. Like you have to ask yeah. and make sure. Um, a lot of people probably saw Moonrise Kingdom. Um, digitally projected, and I saw both i saw the I saw it projected as a film print and I saw it digitally projected The film print is like drastically different mm-hmm. um, so you know i obviously a lot of people they don 't live in a place where they get a lot of options um, sure. and you know obviously i 'd rather err on the side of seeing a movie as a digital projection as opposed to not seeing it at all if it 's good but um, if you if you have a chance really try to Catch films down being shown in their original like 35 millimeter. I know Django Unchained in very few places is 35 millimeter. Yeah. Unfortunately, I could tell I saw a digital projection. Right, that's what that I film. mean.
1: That's and you know thinking back to earlier in the year and just and, like just being completely in awe of watching those films in particular because they're so incredibly shot. Yeah. But just being reminded of oh yeah, I really just wanna. You know, I know we're 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 all destined to. All the digital projectors are going to be placed into these theaters. And
2: but. and honestly, there will be a lot of advantages as far as digital photography being the norm. As oh, far as yeah. as far as low budget productions go, there won't be that gap. Like the digital, as far as lower budgets and therefore you know. Mm-hmm. Studios will maybe be more willing to risk. I mean, obviously, these are very. This is me being optimistic. This isn't necessarily what we're being I'm not, I'm not, not be like Tarantino.
1: Face. Is like, oh, I didn't sign on for this. It's like watching TV. You know, it's not I, that bad.
2: But if, yeah. yeah, I definitely agree with you. Seeing stuff projected as actual film prints is really great, and mm-hmm. I hope I can do that as long as I can. And same. Um, now I have a award I call the "Stop Making Sense" award. Now this is an award for concert films. This is an award for films that are trying too hard to have be meaningful. Um, I think The Dark Knight Rises is actually really great entertainment. Like it's really exciting, and it's um, and I like the action scenes, and I get a, like a transgressive thrill as far as like Christopher Nolan the the amount of damage done to Gotham City in that movie is so crazy. Oh, it's great
1: escapism. Yeah. yeah,
2: like it's really good. But then for every scene where they try to like do like they try to emulate Occupy Wall Street, <clears throat> or they show they show Bane and the Wall Street, uh, <clears throat> like all this, it's a fucking horrible. Um, and I that movie kind of suffered for trying to be more than it was. I mean, I obviously, agree. obviously, a lot of people will agree with me in saying that Dark Knight is good for those reasons. But I don't think that uh, Dark Knight Rises is. And I think if if Christopher Nolan just aired on the side of uh, more comic bookiness, it could have been shorter and it could have been sweeter. And I think it would have probably gotten a better reception than it did. But for me, the number one problem was Magic Mike. Magic Mike is a film that every time it's just, oh, here are a bunch of charming actors being charming. And here's, this is fun. Like, it's great. It's wonderful. But it is really bad at being a movie about the economy it's really, like, hmm. um, like it doesn't do enough to actually be interesting. Um, it, it doesn't... And then there's the sort of rise and fall story that is the exact same story as you'd have in any movie about, like, a, you know, A Star is Born or something like that. Like, oh, they're too big for their britches now. Um, like, that was the worst. Like, the drug addiction stuff um, with yeah. any, with uh, Alex Pritifer and, like, yeah. that was all horrible. And... If Magic that Mike
1: was just fine, if like,
2: Magic Mike was just a light comedy about a mm-hmm. uh, about a male strip club, that would be one thing. But I think it, I think Soderbergh tried to say something. Um, and granted, it's not as hard to watch as like Girlfriend Experience, but I don't also don't think it's necessarily even as deep as Girlfriend Experience. And I don't think Girlfriend Experience is is particularly great in that aspect. But at least I think it has more to say than Magic Mike.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting how he tries to ascribe those, you know. Uh, Sort of the social commentary into these into these movies, but I don't know if it's entirely successful when it feels, Cer- when it feels muddled.
2: Certainly, yeah, certainly in Magic Mike. I mean, yeah. just beyond the fact that everything is piss yellow and looks stupid and horrible, <laughs> uh, with the I guess that's the red camera.
1: I think Haywire was the much better Soderbergh movie. Yeah, I era. didn't
2: get a chance to see that, but I I regret I regret it because I did see Magic Mike and I wasn't so impressed. Also, no dicks in this movie. What the fuck is that? You're you're you you want to see
1: some dicks? You're Patrick? selling
2: you're selling a movie on male nudity. There's no there was just asses, like uh, acid ass thongs? That's come on. Come on. Man. You don't know, you know how many bushes we saw this year and we didn't see any you know we didn't see any dicks in Magic Mike? I'm just saying. Just That's saying. True. That's All right. true. Jim, what's your next ancillary award?
1: I don't know, you mentioned some dicks and uh gotta say, one of the sexiest moments of the year I know you didn't get that far into Cosmopolis, but Robert Pattinson getting a prostate exam in a limo. Ooh. Oh, shit.
2: Yeah. When, one thing I think about when I think about David Cronenberg, I think sexy. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Well, His I movies mean, are always
2: very sexy.
1: The thing about uh, him getting a prostate exam is that you actually hear the Vaseline, mm-hmm. the fingers going in the butt. You have and, my attention. Oh, my God. Yeah. The movie was not so good. But, um... <laughs> No pun intended with saying but. And I will say that my actual answer to this question might be... For this award
2: sexiest shot?
1: Yeah, well the sexiest moment of the year probably goes to a very... uh, Like a film that I wanted to love so much more. And I even had a really intense emotional response to it. It's one of those movies where I'm like, yeah, based on my like uh, personal feelings... About the subject matter, it would probably be much higher on my list. But as a movie, it does it's kind of ordinary, and I felt really conventional. Um, the sessions with John Hawks and, and Helen Hunt, once they um, sort of uh, reach a particular moment where they achieve simultaneous orgasm together, it's not only really sexy, but really beautiful. Because this is a man who's struggled his whole life, and he's never had any intimacy whatsoever. And to be able to finally, I mean, I guess if you want to say spoiler alert, but you know it's gonna, you know where the movie's headed towards. It's not gonna, yeah. it's not gonna be a complete downer. And I think that the the story of a sex surrogate played very you know, with a lot of empathy and kind of just, you, you, it's very fully realized in a lot of dimension with Helen Hunt's character. The only thing I gotta say is that the movie itself is just not that extraordinary. But I will say the the scenes with them together are really really special and them experiencing intimacy together is not only just like really um sexy but just kind of like oh you just you really you really feel for John Hawke's character because he's not playing he's not playing the sympathy angle as, you know, someone with um that particular affliction. Yeah. He's he's actually like got an optimistic viewpoint. He's very lovable, likable and you want him to succeed, and he does, and it's a beautiful moment in, in a rather okay movie. Uh-huh. But I, I will say that once that does happen, I, I sort of teared up. It's really great. That's
2: great. And that's what all good sexy things should do, is they should make you cry afterwards. Of course. yeah. Um, now I have a Controversy Award. This is for the film that garnered the most controversy. There's a lot of controversy this year, in fact, as as regards to some of the bigger films of the year. A lot of people took Argo to task for some of the liberties it took with the facts of the real events um, that it was based on. Um, A lot of people fought over what the master, the meaning of the master was, or if there was a meaning at all. Um, That was a very sort of controversial film in that way. A lot of
1: people aren't happy with The Impossible and the fact that they changed the. um, Like, I believe, I I mean, I know it wasn't. Um, the Thai ethnicity in particular not being, not covering that at all within that country, but I think the actual family that was depicted in the movie, they might have been Mexicans, I want to say that actually vacationed that the movie is based on, uh-huh. but they changed it to white people so a lot of people are upset about
2: that Right, more whitewashing yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of people had a lot of questions about Tarantino and how he approached Django and the use of the N-word in that film and
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, is it a film a white person could make? A lot of people have been arguing about um, Zero dark 30 and its depiction of torture and what that means and if it's if it's condoning torture or not um, but I think the most controversy that had, that had any movie garnered this year as far as um, film people on the internet it was Peter Jackson um, shooting a movie at 48 frames per second yeah
1: which people have not experienced but
2: People were gnashing their teeth. People were ripping their clothes like uh, like Hasidic Jews who just heard the name of the Lord. And Eber um, was saying it was the wave of the future. People were people were killing themselves. Uh, people were asking scientists to prove that it wasn't good, like as if as if that was a science thing, as if like you could do an equation and then go, oh, that means 48 frames per second isn't good. <laughs> I thought it was actually kind of interesting. I saw The Hobbit in 48 frames per second, and it was super distracting as hell, hmm. and I, it looked cheap. And all of those things that the detractor said, but also the special effects were incredible. Um, and they really looked like part of the shot, and the 3D was much better. There were parts of it where I was trying to figure out the camera moves, like how they. Like at one point, I was watching the camera move under the, a troll's legs, and I was like, how do they do that? And then I realized, oh, that's right, he isn't there. Like it's CGI. Yeah. And I haven't thought about that. Like, I haven't thought like that in, as far as CGI in a movie goes since like, I saw Jurassic Park when I was little. Like I think that was the last time I really believed. I didn't. I never thought for a sec, you know. Um, so I honestly think 48 frames per second, despite all the people who are ripping their hair out because it's the death of cinema. Blah blah blah. I have no hair because of it. Yeah, exactly. That's why Jim's bald, people.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, it's uh, it's actually sort of interesting, and I can see it being utilized sort of well, and I can even see getting used to it. So, uh, the Controversy Award goes to uh, Peter Jackson, which, ironically, it goes to him in a year that he made the safest choice as a filmmaker he possibly could have made, mm-hmm. which is another trilogy in Middle Earth. Yeah. Jim, what's your final ancillary award?
1: I don't know. If I have um, one that I think we can get to our, uh, the rest of our big, you know, sort of like our more Oscar-y kind of categories.
2: Oh, you mean Best Actors?
1: Yeah, yeah. If you want to get to those, or do you want to wait till after our list? To I'll absolutely list? get to them. Yeah, okay. I'm up um, for it.
2: I, my best actor was Joaquin Phoenix.
1: Whoa! In The Master. Ding, ding, ding! Yeah. Same here.
2: Absolutely.
1: There's one <laughs> reason to see that movie. Oh, yeah. There's many reasons to see that movie. Uh, there's a
2: couple, but he's definitely the biggest one.
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. Blew me away yeah. with that performance. Oh, there's dogs who agree.
2: Right, the, the 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 angry guard dog next door who protects the pawn shop I live next door to ah. uh, agrees. Walking Phoenix for the master performance of the year.
1: Uh, best actress, it's tough. I mean, I'm assuming she's up for best actress, not best supporting actress. And although, again, I know that Jessica Jessica Chastain has been getting a lot of recognition, but like we said, we haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty. I'm going with Jennifer Lawrence. Oh yeah? For Silver Linings Playbook, I th- I thought she was phenomenal. And, you know, there's definitely, you know, there's moments where you go, "Okay, there's the Oscar clip right there." But I think that she sells this particular character and for for someone who's read the book and could not have imagined someone that young playing the role or, you know, like I said the casting was a big hurdle to overcome for me. Because I I certainly did not picture either of these performers playing these roles. I was thoroughly, thoroughly impressed. And it might be my favorite Jennifer Lawrence performance to date. It's just, you're going to fall in love with her in this movie. She's great.
2: All right. Sounds good. I can't wait to see that movie because I'm really interested to see what I would uh, come up with it. My best supporting actor, I talked about this on the uh, Park Chan-wook episode, uh, would be Simon Russell Beale for The Deep Blue Sea. Ooh! And he plays the Cocolda judge... And he's just a mass. It's just a masterclass in as far as doing very much with very little. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't have many scenes. He doesn't have any big moments. It's a very quiet moment, but everything about his performance tells you everything about the entire life of that character. Yeah, um, and he's just absolutely brilliant in a way that is so subtle and amazing that it's. It's kind of just astounding, and it's the kind of most supporting actor kind of you know Oscars and awards and big notices. Those all go to people who are, um, you know, those go to people who are character actors who do something crazy like Christoph Waltz and he does a lot Roy of his face in that
1: movie. That's just really, and he doesn't doesn't necessarily like you know with facial expression you could just tell that he can, he's yeah retaining. it's very internal it's yeah. a very
2: internal performance he's and amazing in that so
1: but what was your best actress? Did you have a Best actor? Oh, that's
2: right. We went to Best Actress. I apologize. Uh, Anne Hathaway for Les Miserables. Oh, really? Yeah. Doing very lot with, uh, with the short amount of time on screen. Also, I didn't see a lot of movies with, uh, that featured actresses prom- prominently. So uh, that was my problem uh, there. I honest- <laughs> Honestly, okay. I bet it would be different if I saw more movies. But as is Anne Hathaway in, in uh, Les Miserables. is really great.
1: Um, best Supporting Actor is kind of an interesting choice Maybe if I thought about it harder, I would come up with something else. But um, in, a, in, a, in a with a movie that is chock full of fantastic performances all around, I really do think Samuel L. Jackson uh, did so many incredible things with Django Unchained and surprised me even more than DiCaprio did with... Like what he brings to that role because it starts off as very comedic and crazy and over the top And, and, then, uncom- and, then, and then uncomfortable' he it, very uncomfortable yeah like, like very stepping
2: there are there a couple there are a couple of people in our theater because we saw it together there are a couple of people in our theater who I don't think got the uncomfortable part
1: uh, they thought
2: yeah. it was purely comedic. Yeah, and they were just like laughing a lot, whereas I, mean, I was kind of squirming.
1: I was it's it was squirming and laughing because of the discomfort. Yeah, know, as I mean that was kind of like yeah, he really
2: does take it there. Huh?
1: Yeah, and then you know he has these really intense, you know when he when he's uh, you know in, behind the scenes of the dinner, talking to um, you know Kerry Washington's character, and then really reveals. Who he? Who he actually is? And
2: I, what I like about the character also is that Samuel Jackson is so often just, oh, we need a cool motherfucker. Yes. Oh, Samuel Jackson. He's the cool motherfucker. I know. That's what we I'm need saying. a cool motherfucker. Oh, and like he's just always playing Samuel Jackson. And what's great is Quentin Tarantino really like he's the cool motherfucker in Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. but he has a lot. He shows a lot more depth in his performance in Jackie Brown. Yeah. And then in this it's a completely different character than than Ordell or uh, or his character in Pulp Fiction, right, Jules.
1: Exactly. So it's like. He gives him something to do, yeah. You know, and that's what I really appreciated about it. And it just reminded me again that he's just such an incredible performer. After in every way.
2: after I watched the after I watched Django, I went back and I watched some of his scenes on YouTube from Jungle Fever.
1: Oh yeah, oh man, I forgot it. Which that is, is all, so which good. is a very similar role where yeah. it's almost a step and fetch it kind of portrayal right, of right. a crackhead.
2: Yeah, but then there's just this underlying sort of pain Sadness. and yeah that totally. just blows like. Like, the Cannes Film Festival, they invented an award to give him for mm-hmm. Jungle Fever. <laughs> like, that's how great that I was. I just
1: remember, like, you know, after seeing him in this, just thinking, yeah, I just, I hadn't felt this happy to see a Samuel L. Jackson performance since Black Snake Mode. Like, yeah. So I Absolutely. just I wanted to give him some credit.
2: That's a good choice. Now, my Best Supporting Actress, again, uh, the actress category is just by nature of the fact that actresses don't get many great roles the <laughs> like... True. It, from true. from mainstream films, um but also just the fact that I didn't see a ton of movies. Uh this is sort of uh, I sort of had to struggle to come up with one. But I do think Emily Blunt was really great in the looper. In the looper. In the looper. <laughs> the looper. Yeah, the looper. Um from the Ryan Johnson. Uh no, she's really great in Looper. Um, I would agree. I was actually a little worried about her character because when she f- you know, when she first appears, the only other female characters we've seen or prostitutes yeah and it's like oh we got the mother and we got the prostitute and those are the roles in this film but like emily well, Blunt, reveals her layers she's tro- like she she has a lot of layers for a character which is you know pretty small as far of the story goes she's yeah. she's very strong but she you know she there's also the sort of the sexual desire and then there's also just sort of the she's just so tired and she's um you see you know we see her vulnerability and there's like she does a lot with that performance, so I really loved her in Looper.
1: Yeah, I totally. Yeah, especially the moment where like you finally find out about her son—not to get too spoilery—but she has to go into a, a was it a closet or she has to lock herself away. Yeah, yeah. That you know, she really conveys a lot of um, anxiety in that role too. She's really great, really great multi-layered performance. I thought she was fantastic. She's an actress. that's the more and more I see her, the more and more I like her.
2: Yeah, and Looper was also a film like, and that's almost the that's almost the experience of seeing Looper in a nutshell, which yeah. is Looper was a film that uh, you think it's going to be one thing, and you get kind of worried that it's just going to be one thing, and it slowly just reveals more and more layers, mm-hmm. um, and reveals itself to be a very complicated and very interesting and so naturally the, everyone argued about the least interesting part of that movie which, yeah. is, the, which is whether or not it's time travel was accurate no <laughs> like, of course not it's fucking time travel it doesn't make any sense it's a goddamn no, paradox no that's
1: what got me annoyed when I was, that movie first yeah. came out and I was hearing those arguments speaking of Luper I w- um,
2: do you have a list of honorable mentions
1: well I wanted to bring up my best supporting oh answer, I'm
2: sorry I get, which, out of, I uh, get lost again
1: it's, it's, it's tough wow you mentioned Emily Blunt and uh, her co-star in the movie Sunshine Cleaning uh-huh. was Amy Adams, and Amy Adams in The Master. Yeah, I think that she, again, one of those performances where she's mostly there in the background, quiet, but she does a lot. If you watch carefully in the yeah. movie, I think she's almost uh, as effective as uh, Joaquin Phoenix, but in a completely different way, in a I... less in a less showy
2: way. I've heard that from a couple of people, and I didn't. I didn't see it. Um, I mean, obviously, I only saw the film the one time, and it's a film that will probably greatly benefit um, yeah. from seeing multiple times. But I, I think I,
1: it's more of just like a lot of the things she does again internally or with her face, or like the looks she's giving Walking Phoenix in certain moments. And obviously, we you know we know the moment uh, with her and Philip Seymour Hoffman in the right. bathroom. And I think she really brings a lot to that role where. Um she does have kind of she does have a um despite the fact
2: that she's kind of a very tiny waif a very yeah. very cute like she has a very uh she has a strong intensity in she this does. film.
1: That's a that's a good way to put it definitely. Um so the honorable mentions you want yeah, to Yeah, sorry, I
2: skipped ahead there. Um speaking of Looper, um Looper is on mine as well as uh Les Misérables, uh The Hunger Games which I think I think people don't give yeah, it enough like credit the- I think the Hunger Games for the first 40 minutes up until the actual Hunger Games start, mm-hmm. I think, is dynamite. I think that's really great. Um, and then the Hunger Games start and all the action scenes are shot with shaky cam and then nothing really makes sense. But as far as that, before then, it's great. Yeah. Um, Bernie, um, which oh, is yeah, good. Oh, yeah, I really like that too. It's not a movie that would, I would ever make my list because it's so small. It's just <laughs> such a trifle, but it's fun. Um, Dark Knight Rises, which, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think is really entertaining and fun um despite the fact that it's really really fucking dumb um the hobbit uh which i, I love the whimsy of that film i w- probably like it more see, than the see the fact
1: that you mentioned whimsy and that it doesn't take itself as seriously as lord of the rings and that yeah. makes me want to see it more i
2: i would i will say That's towards the end, towards about. the end it kind of does oh, okay but it is definitely more of a how are we going to think our way out of this one well, kind of movie fun. as opposed to As opposed to, you have my blade because I'm steely and I have determination and blah, 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 blah. blah. And that's sort of shit that sort of turned me off Lord of the Rings. Um, And this must be the place, which is, I really, again, must stress, Jim, you have to see it because it's so similar to Paris, Texas. It
1: seems a lot more quirkier than Paris, Texas. Paris, Texas is kind of a very modern movie. It is
2: quirkier than Paris, Texas, but it also has the same sort of um, weird look at America. Okay. Uh
1: I can get behind that.
2: I think I I think if you're not turned off by its quirkiness, which some were and I understand that, um, you will find a lot to like. Okay. So, also it, it has uh, again, so bad with actors' names. Who's the lead of Paris, Texas?
1: Harry Dean
2: Stanton. Yeah, it has Harry Dean Stanton. In oh,
1: nice.
2: It, uh, in a brief role. So, those are oh, uh, what's your
1: honorable mention, Shim? Um it's tough. I mean, a lot of these titles you know could easily be in the top 10 and I know that they're probably on a lot of other people's top ten lists, but uh, uh, there were just a lot of other films that affected me more, and one, like, the number one that's gotta be number eleven that pains me to leave off the top ten because Paul Thomas Anderson's my favorite director. Yeah. Uh, The Master is, like, kind of my number one runner-up, and I just wonder if I watched it again, maybe I'd feel more strongly about it, but I definitely feel like and who knows, maybe after we get to see it a second time and we can talk about it more, maybe do a bonus episode like we wanted to yeah, yeah. with some people who love it even more or like it even less. With,
2: with some distance from the release. And yeah, some, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd love to revisit it, um, but I do have issues with it. I, I just feel like thematically it's almost too loose or something. Like It, it doesn't feel like it, it resolves itself in a way that I found entirely satisfying including the the window to the wall sequence I wasn't sure what he was going for there. I don't dislike that sequence, but I actively don't understand the kind of the way things wrap up with him and Philip Seymour Hoffman with the steamboat to China moment. I'm not sure other than just to convey like a sense of departure between the two of them why it doesn't resonate with me and why it doesn't feel like it works in context with the rest of the movie. Yeah. So I mean, we'll have that discussion later and maybe longer, and maybe we later.
2: absolutely will.
1: Because I don't know. It's Go like, ahead and
2: move on to your next honorable I will. mention.
1: It's just one of those movies I'm just like I'm struggling with it so much in yeah. my brain. I mean,
2: I'll I'm, I, I assure you I will address that a little later in the show. So uh, what's yeah. your next honorable mention?
1: Um, another movie that I feel like is going to be higher up on so many other people's list is Argo, which yeah. is a great thriller that, again, I'm not sure if I like maybe one thing about it that keeps it off, but I still love everything else. I think it's yeah. a Ben Affleck's best film to date, and it's such a nail-biting movie, To and I got lost in it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, Compliance, which is a movie I've been championing for quite a long time, and feel like it's uh, one of those movies that kept me on my edge of the seat, and also... Mm-hmm. There's just, uh, so, I mean, we did an extensive bonus episode on that film, along with The Impostor, where I address my quibbles with that as well. The Deep Blue Sea, which we talked about fairly recently on another yep. episode. Rachel Weiss could have also been my um, runner-up for Best Actress. Mm-hmm. I don't
2: think, I think, her, I think her role is too reactive. Yeah. She doesn't get a lot of great moments in, in Deep Blue Sea. That's why... Like, that's, she's superb in that film, but that's the only yeah. reason why she didn't compare to Anne Hathaway to me, is because um, she's more reactive as opposed to... Oh, she, I
1: understand that completely. but it's, it, it, it's, it's about
2: her character sort of wandering to all these people who are doing this dynamite acting to it's her. It's one
1: of the more emotionally satisfying doomed love stories I've yeah. seen all year. Yeah. Uh, Looper, I agree with you. Everything you said, fantastic film. And uh, Lincoln, which is uh, Spielberg's best movie, I don't know. Since Minority Report, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, and then one more. Gotta go with The Avengers. It was a lot of fun. Yeah? That's all I can say. It's just fun.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I saw it three times in the theater.
2: Now, uh, are you ready
1: to uh, move on to our top ten of the year? I'm going to take a break. Oh, we're um, going to take a break and listen to a voicemail? Yeah, I was thinking we should definitely listen to a voicemail, but I also want to get another beer and pee.
4: Hello, James. Hello, Patrick Sun. This is Andrew James from the Row 3 Cinecast, and I was just calling in to say congratulations on 50 episodes. I can't believe you guys have are, are already at that point. Uh, it's fantastic. So here's to another, another year or 12 uh, of the Directors Club podcast. It's always on the top of my... Um, subscriber list on my on my feed for podcasts and i always am excited when there's a new one popping up so thanks for letting me listen and again congratulations on 50 episodes now on to more important stuff me um so you're looking for stuff for the end of the year um i will give you a few the worst movie that i saw by far was resident evil retribution it is I guess not any surprise that it's terrible, but I kind of, for one, one way or another, have enjoyed previous resident evil films. Uh, and this one was just so inept and so dumb, literally in the sense of the word dumb. Uh, the script was terrible. The dialogue was horrible. The acting was awful. Um, it just, it had some neat ideas and in one or two places looked kind of cool. Otherwise completely inept. Um, Probably the most disappointing
5: movie of the year
4: would be Pixar's Brave. Um, It's the first Pixar movie I think I actually don't really like. Um, I was excited for it, uh, but pretty much it's really cliche and, frankly, pretty boring. Um, It's predictable.
3: Yeah, her hair
4: looks nice, but um, for the most part, I just found it it really grating, particularly the music. I had to, like... Listened to Spotify for six months uh, just to get that awful, awful uh, soundtrack from Brave out of my head. So, Pixar, for the first time ever, kind of shit the bed. And uh, I didn't enjoy that one. The biggest surprise, probably, of the year would be 21 Jump Street. Um, it was surprisingly very funny, and even more surprisingly, kind of smart. Uh, it, it really did a great job of tackling some of the things that it, it deals with. So, um, you know, it's retro and also the way things sort of have changed over the last 20 years in high schools dramatically in terms of uh, clicks and who the popular kids are and what trends are and stuff. And so I really, I really like that. And plus it was just goofy fun too for the whole thing. And uh, Channing Tatum, Tatum Channing, uh, it's really was his breakout year. And that was one of the reasons. Um, okay, top 10. There's a ton of movies I haven't seen. By the time we get around to the cinecast, the list might be completely different. I haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty. I haven't seen Rust and Bone, Cosmopolis, uh, Life of Pi, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Leviathan, The Paperboy, Robot and Frank, Not Fade Away, uh, The Sessions, Once Upon a Time, and As I was saying. Continuing on, I'll try to be a little bit more succinct top 10 of the year like i said this could totally change anytime. any time um, but right now number 10 holy motors number nine django unchained number eight seeking a friend for the end of the world yes i like that movie number seven the avengers yes andrew has a comic book superhero movie in his top 10 number six headhunters Number five, Magic Mike. Yes, Andrew has a Steven Soderbergh in his top ten. Number four, Cabin in the Woods. Number three, Skyfall. Yes, Andrew has a James Bond film in his top ten. Number two, The Imposter. Yes, Andrew has a documentary in his top ten. And number one, a movie that was in a lot of people's lists last year, but it didn't hit Minneapolis until 2012, uh, fairly deep into 2012 so it is is Café de flor amazing it will floor you uh, turn it up and enjoy thanks again for letting you guys uh, let me ramble on your guys show it's a again it's been a fantastic year and I look forward to a fan, another fantastic 2013 congrats on 50 episodes and we'll catch you on down the line for the Polanski episode Cheers
1: oh thank you so much Andrew yeah. Everybody, what, what's the
2: worst movie you saw this year? I didn't even think about that. What's the worst movie you saw this year? Do you think?
1: Prometheus. I was going to say the same thing. Prometheus. It's made some lists, including Jay Cheels. Yeah, that's very <laughs> odd. Uh, we'll get to that later.
2: Um, and for right now, though, how about we uh, get to our top ten, Jim? I'll let you go first because ladies go first.
1: What? Yeah, I went there. I have a vagina. Yeah, <laughs> Learn something new every day
2: It'd be funny if it wasn't just a weird Ironic parody of Like schoolyard burns and it was actually Like the way we chose to reveal that you had a Male to female sex
1: change <laughs> big, big news on the end of the year episode I wonder if people can tell that we're Jim is now or... Jane
2: <laughs> Alright what was your number 10 of the year Jim
1: Well Here we go no, it's not Here We Go. Um, there is no movie called Here We Go, as far as I know. Away We Go. Oh, number, no. Number <laughs> that's Wrong number year. Ten. Wrong year. Yeah. But, um... I don't know. I'd say... There's, there's about three movies on this list that are influenced by my own... Sort of... Personal... Kind of... Uh, ability to relate... Intensely to the movie itself. To the characters. Um... So there's a little influence by it. That's know? the Jim way. I would it, it, expect nothing it is, different. It is the Jim way. It is the oh god emotional response triumphs over every all else. Yeah. And I usually probably the best
2: way to watch movies.
1: I usually reserve number ten for the you know unabashed kind of you know personal choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is going to a film that probably surprised me the most out of any other. Because I saw the trailer and I was like, "Meh," doesn't do much for me, and that would be the perks of being a wallflower. Oh yeah, and it's interesting because last year you chose a movie called "The Myth of the American Sleepover," and is that the-
0: is that like this?
1: I um, mean, is is is, uh, is wallflower is like it myth? Same age group,
2: but no. I mean, like yeah, as far as the film goes,
1: I would say it's definitely not as. Um, Slow and
2: moody yeah, and some ambulant. Yeah, and-
1: no. <laughs> it has some moments of moodiness. I mean, I was really worried that was going to be just like too precious and too quirky and too right. indie and twee or that's whatever. Actually, kind of-
2: it's it's based on a book that was very popular when I was in high school, and yeah. all of the all the people who really loved that book were just the kind of insufferably twee people who loved Donnie Darko.
1: Yeah, and that's and people were saying that oh, you should read this book. That the lead character is a lot like you. And then when this movie came out, oh, you should see this movie. The lead character's a lot like you. I'm like, "Man, I don't know. It just it just didn't do much for me and I just I didn't even like the title. The Perks of Being a Wallflower." Yeah. Just it, I don't know. There's something there about it that rubbed me the wrong way. Well, what uh,
2: rubbed you the right way about this movie?
1: Um first of all, it's probably the best portrayal of introversion that I've ever seen. And it doesn't turn it doesn't turn the characters at all into caricatures. It's very respectful. It is probably the best John Hughes movie that has ever been made. In that, it's like it really treats them with full dimension. It it never like puts them in a box. It never really portrays them in any other way than fully realized human beings with flaws and foibles, and and they certainly. Do things in that age bracket that you know are very identifiable, and there are countless films about the trials and tribulations of trying to get through high school uh-huh. and there are certain moments that kind of make me question like, oh, how could they not know that song or why doesn't why doesn't why aren 't there principals or teachers or adult figures interfering with the fight? At the high school cafeteria right now. But it all feels because it's coming from the point of view of the lead character. Uh, Logan Lerman plays this guy who really has trouble um, being social with people. And then he just meets two socially awkward people, too, who, you know, eventually just they just create a nice uh, circle of friends. And it was pretty much my high school experience almost to a T, portrayed on screen. Uh-huh. Exactly. Because, you know, I made like two or three friends, really close friends that I saw on a regular basis in high school, and they were a lot like these people. And we would hang out in the basement and just have these kinds of conversations together. And there's definitely surprises later in the movie with what what happened, like what caused this character to be who he is, why he has some difficulties uh, mentally, I guess you could say, and it never feels manipulative. It's really a a surprisingly warm and uh, incredibly emotionally satisfying film about that transition in high school where awkwardness is just inevitable, but you eventually come out of your shell, and when you do, it's a beautiful thing, and this movie really um I mean, it has those things that you know might make your eyes roll like making friends through mixtapes, but again that 's what I did in high school and it 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 felt like the most perfect portrayal of that, and the purpose of being a wallflower to me is just um it, it 's so subtle in its approach. I like that it 's not one of those movies that 's like wall to wall music or it doesn 't succumb to cliches and the same way that I've seen in other films, um, so and and the, and the guy from we need to talk about Kevin who I hated so much in that movie. The he, Kevin, the, yeah, yeah, the he's so Kevin? good in this. He's yeah. so great.
2: <laughs> Maybe it's because he. Maybe it's because because and we need to talk about Kevin. His character represents where the where the whole movie falls apart. Yeah, which is it's this very detailed and layered and interesting movie, and then suddenly Hannibal Lecter shows up.
1: Well, for a long time, I was like Patrick. If you really want to see what I how I was like in in high school, or you know, kind of get a sense of you know my adolescence portrayed perfectly, I always would say, "Pump up the volume." You need, you need to mm-hmm. see that movie. But now I'd say. See, Perks of being a wallflower. I'll make it a double feature. Yeah, you should. Yeah, I'll hate them both, and I'll make you cry. the volume is super dated, but <laughs> that's um, fine. But I'd say that you know, Perks of being a wallflower just feel all uh, hits all the right notes for me, and um, you know, Emma Watson's really, really great in this movie too. So I don't know. It's just it's one of those movies that hit home for me in every way. Yeah, awesome. Great. I've only heard good things about it,
2: um, and it's nice when there are teenage movies that aren't just bullshit. Because there aren't a lot, um, just in general. Like, you know, in the world, in the history, there haven't been a lot of movies about high school that aren't bullshit.
1: Yeah, and I can't tell you, like, you know, just the, the one sort of kind of moment or subplot, I guess you could say, where he, you know, he can't be with the girl that he really wants to be with, so he decides to have, you know, take this other girl who was attracted to him and make him, make her his girlfriend, I'm like, oh my god, did I do that in high school, and, you know, it's like one of those things where I'm like, well, this girl is attracted to me, I guess I'll just be with her, because I can't be with this other girl, uh-huh. that's just one of those high school moments, and, oh man, the first, the first make-out scene, like, just everything was, like, exactly how it was for me, yeah, um, I mean, there's, there's definitely, like, a revelation towards the end of the movie, that's not applicable to me, but I still went with it and still empathized Is that with when it. he turns into a werewolf? Yes.
2: Have I heard a good writing about this movie? Yeah, he turns into a werewolf at the end, right? Mm-hmm. The perks of being uh, like a <laughs> rope. Um, my number 10 is a movie that we discussed earlier um, as far as honorable mentions go uh, on your list of honorable mentions. Uh, it did make it into my number 10, and that is The Master. Oh, cool. Um, it's a movie that before I saw it, I would have immediately assumed it would have been at least my number one or my or competing strongly for my number one um, because just that trailer is so great and that trailer does what I think this movie tries to do which is I think the the trailer really does um, give you just enough information to send your mind racing and trying to figure out what's going on and and just sends you in a diff- million different directions it's very evocative um, and very powerful and I don't think this movie completely succeeds in being that in total I it's, I did get you know, very strong fatigue towards the end, and I even wrote a review, as uh, our previous guest Brian Tallarico brought up, I brought, wrote a 4.5 out of 5 star review of this film. A very film. good review, yes. It was a review that I wrote assuming that this movie would grow for me, and it actually hasn't been a film that has grown for me. It's a film that actually kind of shrunk in in memory, but it's still a film that...
1: I wonder if you need if you'd seen it a second time though, what, what Yeah, yeah, you
2: no, think? absolutely. Like we like we discussed, a second time, a second viewing may be essential. But even so, Joaquin Phoenix's performance is so amazing and there are a ton of scenes that, if you just take them on their own, are just really amazing. The scene mm-hmm. in which Joaquin Phoenix is harassing the man that he's taking a photograph of in the department store. Oh my god. Like all of the all of the stuff early on with him, you know, drinking uh, like working as like a migrant worker and drink and making that weird concoction and someone getting poisoned, yeah. Like this movie, really, to an extent, does do does make you really think, um, and it really tries and it really does a lot of interesting things. And I don't want to take that away from it mm-hmm. just because I don't think in the end it amounts to even as much as I mean, if 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 people listening remember our Paul Thomas Anderson episode, I was even skeptical that. There Will Be Blood is really about anything in particular. And I think that There Will Be Blood feels more cohesive than this. But the raw materials of The Master are incredible. It is a fucking gorgeous film. Yes, it is. It's really incredible. The score is just in- amazing. Um, it's, a, it's, the, it's, like, it's, it's the kind of score that if you just drove around listening to it, you'd eventually begin to feel like Joaquin Phoenix just because it's, <laughs> it's so maddening and crazy.
1: Try listening to that while at work. Yeah. That's what I was doing. Oh, really?
2: I think I'm becoming (laughs) crazier. You start looking at people all weird and, like, attacking them. Uh, (laughs) Philip Seymour Hoffman's really good. As you brought up, Amy Adams is really good. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of good performances. Um, There's a lot about this movie I really do love. Even if uh, I think this is a lot of people's, like, favorite film of the year, a lot of people really, you know, are uh, head over heels about it. I'm not. It's still a film that I really enjoyed. The first
1: processing scene is one of my favorite moments of 2012.
2: Yeah, I will. Yeah, the proce- first processing scene is incredible. Um,
1: it actually, like when I think about it more in my mind, I love it. That particular moment mm-hmm. and him, you know, like having that flashback to that relationship he had with the girl is really powerful to me. At least in my memory, when I think, you mean about his aunt? It. Well, not his aunt. <laughs> no, <it's laughs> when he was before he got shipped off and everything. Oh,
2: right. I, that that was one of the weakest parts for me. I really hated the relationship with the girl. I didn't know what it was adding up to. It didn't seem to be anything to mm-hmm. me. Um, but like stuff like the pre the musical number I previously mentioned, where it like where in a nutshell, it, it sort of it is a it's sort of the film in a nutshell where you don't know what exactly. Not only do you not know the context of the scene at certain points, less and less people seem like they're wearing clothes, and you can't remember if that's like if there are actually less people wearing clothes in this shot, or if you just didn't notice them before, yeah. and it just slowly slips into this very weird Bacchanal, and, to, and uh, the way that he's able to play with your mind and scenes like that, like individual scenes I can list that I love, um, even if it didn't work together to me. I will say, this is the kind of film that, of a lot of those films that I mentioned earlier on my list of shame, I, I imagine it would have been relegated to my honorable mentions. Um, it's not a film I'm passionate about. It's not a film that I passionately defend. Um,
1: I wish I was.
2: <laughs> well, I wish I was passionate about all films because that would mean that all films are great and that would be amazing. But you know, but it is a it is a really good film, and it's a re- film I really enjoyed watching. Um, and I you know I don't think you should deny how you first reacted to a film, even if later on you think back on it and you go, oh, I guess that really didn't make much hmm. sense. So uh, yeah, The Master is my number ten.
1: Philip Seymour Hoffman should come on screen more often. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Happiness, The Master, it's yeah. the it only good
1: things. He didn't come on screen in pirate radio and look what happened to that movie. <laughs> he should. <laughs> oh, man. Um, my number nine is a movie that might have just been in my runner's up head and I just watched it uh, New Year's Eve and loved it even more the second time. And I think it's a film that you watch it a second time you grow to appreciate it more because you find um, more... Not necessarily Beneath the Service, but you, you grow to appreciate its thesis, but you also grow to appreciate just the in-jokes, and that would be uh, Josh Whedon and Drew Goddard's collaboration, The Cabin in the Woods. Uh-huh! <laughs> That's a very good movie! I love it. Yeah. I love it to death. And, you know, it's... <laughs> I know the first time I saw it, I was like, man, the ending's kind of lame. Um, you know, just the idea of them bringing imo- upon the apocalypse is just kind of a, I don't know, an easy out.
2: I will. I mean, I mean, even, and I don't think it's necessarily an easy out because it's so clearly metaphorical,
1: mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. allegorical,
2: just like the rest of the film is. Yeah, I don't think, I don't, I don't quite. In fact, I wish we could. Maybe we we could really quickly, um, at some point, call film crit Hulk because film crit Hulk was really enamored of that ending. Oh yeah, and to me. Um, it seems to imply that horror fans only want the same thing, but I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's true. I think horror fans love it when things flip the script and, you know, change it. But right. the idea is that if something doesn't follow a rigid structure, it, it, like, if if in fact the old gods who need to be appeased in *Kevin in the Woods <laughs> are, are us, the viewers, um, in that case, like, uh... That means that they need rigid, they need things to follow rigid structure, rigid formula, and things need to go exactly as planned, otherwise, they don't like the movie. And mm-hmm. to me, I don't think that's the case. I think people really love ingenuity.
1: Yeah, well, I think that the, the main issue I had too is just like, it, it felt like, especially once Sigourney Weaver comes on to the, you know, to, to the scene, it's, it, it becomes exposition time and let's explain to you what all this means. I don't think I would
2: even mind that as much if it. If it didn't follow like some of the most spectacular moments of 2012. Oh God, yeah. That that final ending is so great.
1: It makes me giddy yeah. every time I think about it and see it. um It's like I was talking to somebody at work who wasn't as crazy about. I it, it was like, oh, but those those creatures—they were all CGI. All oh, those creatures didn't look that cool, and you know that pinhead imitation and blah blah blah. And it's like. But they were not going to get the rights to the actual Pinhead and the actual, you know, they were going to get Freddy Krueger himself or whatever, you know. Just you got to give them the benefit of the doubt. And they that.
2: don't need it. it's already it's they don't need it if it it's not that specific. Mm-hmm. It's a it's not a film that is that specific in references.
1: Right. It, it, no yeah.
2: one no one says the name Friday Thirteenth. No one says Evil Dead. Right. No it one goes. This is just that like specific. that movie, Evil Dead. They, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's not that specific of a movie. It's talking about horror more generally. Traffic,
1: you know, it traffic's in those those tropes that you come to know and love, and and subverts them, and has this inventiveness with it, and is also just flat out funny. And, and oh, so funny! Yeah, and you know, that's just Josh Whedon. I just love what he does. In the same way that Buffy surprised the hell out of me throughout its seasons, there were just things that he he brings to. Um, his style and his screenplays that constantly surprise me. And I think that, you know, I don't know what what, what exactly he plans to do, you know, other than another Avengers movie, but I, it just gets me excited for him to tackle more genre-style st- films and sort of subverting them again, because I think it's a sheer joy to watch something like this, because it's it, <laughs> it takes something you know when i first saw scream and thinking it's not only you know a satire a satire of the slasher genre but it's at the same time celebrating the slasher genre and becoming a slasher film that is also effective to where the whole crowd is screaming and you're getting that same sensation that you would with a regular horror movie and i think that's really kind of a tricky thing to pull off and the cabin in the woods makes it fun to watch a horror movie again and also has something to say about the horror movie genre that doesn't feel very pandering or like you're being preached to at the same time. And I was worried about that like the first time I saw it with you know, the ending with Sigourney Weaver coming on and like, what's, what's this all about again? And what is the point of it? And I feel like I, I, I just let it wash over me. I kind of liked it more the second time. And I felt like I understood where he was going with it. And I almost looked at it as like the anti-John Hughes movie at the end. How's that? With those four sort of or the five stereotypes that she's sort of harping on about. I mean, those are also brought upon obviously with horror movies. Yeah, in I, general. I, I,
2: I don't think at all it's I don't I think it's definitely in the context of a slasher movie slasher yeah, movie archetypes it, as opposed to John Hughes archetypes. I know.
1: But I think it's just kind of funny in, in hindsight with, you know, how you brought up, you know, the Breakfast Club is like, oh, all these guys are just Stereotypes and John Hughes wrote them as stereotypes, and you said a better ending for The Breakfast Club would be as if they all just killed John Hughes at the end of the movie. for right. Stereo- stereotypes. Yeah, because Breakfast
2: Club is a movie about stereotypes complaining their stereotypes, right. and instead of instead of saying, "Oh, no one understands me," they should be saying, "Hey, why am I a stereotype?" To begin with, "Oh, it's because a shitty screenwriter wrote it." Yeah, and I feel like The Cabin movie. in the Woods is
1: like, "That's why should we be stereotypes, or why should horror movies be?" You know th- this kind well, they're manufactured,
2: yeah, there like that's that's what's brilliant about that movie, yeah, I love it, yeah,
1: Kevin Lewis is great, so
2: imaginative, um, my number nine is a movie, again, a movie that was in your honorable mentions, um is Argo, oh yeah, um I like I think this is probably my favorite Ben Affleck movie because um you know, I think a lot of people were complaining about how it wasn't necessarily factual. A lot of people are complaining about necessarily sort of the politics and how it depicts um, CIA. A lot of people are sort of questioning whether it's about filmmaking. I think it's just a thriller. Like that's what I thought. It's just a straight ahead, balls to the wall thriller, and I it's not it was a little a...
1: implausible towards the end, but that's okay.
2: No, absolutely, but it. I didn't stop me from fucking. Sure. Like just biting my fist and going, "Oh no!" <laughs> no. Like, ah. like I, I was freaking out. Mm-hmm. There's a whole forty-five minute chunk of that movie where I'm freaking out when I'm watching it, and to me, that's like that makes it one. Of, it's just such an amazing thriller. There's not many thrillers that are that tense and that draw that much tension from things that are so simple. Um, it's just a perfect uh, concept for an exercise in tension and. The fact that it is so smart, um, so quiet, and so subdued, it's its very odd that it's the kind of film that gets on a lot of, that's like, people are talking about as far as Oscar contender and people are talking about as far as the prestige, because it's just a genre, it's just a thriller. It's not, it's not about politics, it's not about Iran, it doesn't have, it doesn't necessarily resonate now any more than it would if it came out in 1998, like... It's it's not about the Middle East, really.
3: Hmm.
2: I mean that's that's there, but it's only there because there's nothing scarier than being caught by a rioting mob. Like they only exist. <laughs> to, yeah. Like it's it doesn't really explore it. I mean, it obviously. It, I think it, but I do think it does its job, and I think a lot of people were saying it depicts Iranians as sort of this faceless I- Iranians as sort of this faceless mob, um, and that it's sort of racist in that way, where it doesn't depict. But I think it does its job in sort of the opening moments where it sets up that the CIA fucked themselves over by, by doing what the CIA does, which sure. is by overthrowing anyone who doesn't happen to fall in with their plans for how the world should work. And I think that's all the finger pointing you need towards the CIA, that when the CIA then goes and gets them out, it's not like, oh, what heroes? It's, oh, finally, like, it's, can they clean up their mess that they made, you know? Right. Um so and it's and it's just really well put together in a way that there aren't a lot of movies like this anymore. There aren't movies where uh just walking through a crowded place is just as thrilling as a, a gunfight or something like that.
1: Oh, I know that was a really tense moment. Good
2: yeah. God! When when she when he's fighting over the photographs and when they're putting and they have the ticking clock of putting the photographs together from all the shredded paper. Like, and you pretty much know the outcome, but yet yeah, it's still fucking. Yeah, tense I as didn't hell. even. I mean, I didn't even know the outcome because I would never read the article, but I assumed that they yeah. would be making this movie about a bunch of Americans who try to get out and then get captured and executed. So I assumed the outcome, but um, yeah, like it's. Amazingly put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I think the I think the filmmaking stuff is just sort of fun flavor. I don't think it necessarily adds a whole. Like I don't think it's about filmmaking. I don't think it's trying to make some kind of comparison between espionage and. No, filmmaking. I was worried it was
1: going to come to like wag the doggy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too.
2: Um, it and it didn't at I all. think honestly the ending doesn't help because the ending doesn't make sense in terms of, like, the rest of the film is just a straight-ahead, really well-put-together thriller and there's that sort of ending shot where it's just a montage of all the Star Wars action figures Oh, it with shows, the sun? Uh, yeah. Whereas, I don't know what he's trying to get across in that moment. Like, maybe he just fe- figured it wouldn't be good unless he had some kind of irony at the end, but there's no irony there it's, it's sort of like a because it's not, the movie isn't about filmmaking and the movie isn't about, yeah. like, Hollywood and the movie isn't about like other than the most shallow sort of observations, as "Hey, you're tricking people, and then they're tricking people," blah blah blah. You know, like, which is just that's just the, that's the baseline for any kind of satire on yeah, Hollywood. Kind of had a
1: silly ending too. I thought It was just like, man, eh, that you didn't need that. Yeah, but, yeah. You know,
2: but I but I do think that they do a good job of setting him up as someone that you care about. You don't just mm-hmm. care about him succeeding for the for the sake of sort of all the Americans left you know, behind enemy lines, you care about him, too.
1: And I thought it wasn't too, like, again, like like a director casting himself in the lead role or something. It's like, I, I didn't, it's one of those things where you can go either way, where it's like, oh, it's too vain, and, you know. No, he, this is
2: definitely not that. There's no, no Oscar moment. No, he's It's one not. of the least he, really showy, it's one of the least showy subtle. possible performances. Yeah. Um, he rocks the beard. He doesn't even save the day at the end. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the other guy the right, right, other Right, right, right. <laughs> The guy
1: who's like, really hesitant about the yeah. whole thing.
2: Which, again, um, which some people are like, oh, yeah, it's not as smart as things is because that's a very Hollywood thing <laughs> to have the guy who's most afraid. But like, no, that's the kind of movie it is from the start. Um,
1: yeah, I totally got that impression from the whole movie.
2: Yeah, that it was just really well put together. The thriller, I just...
1: Really I, I, I don't know. I, that's the thing, too, though, is that I wouldn't elevate it the way a lot of people have I think this... a lot of
2: people just see Middle East and they think it's Middle East movie. They just yeah. think, "Oh, it must be Syriana. It must be it must be saying something about something." I think the same I thing about had a good I time the watching Her- it. I don't think The Hurt Locker really said anything about the Iraq War any more than it says something about all war. <laughs> but I think a lot I think the reason The Hurt Locker won Best Picture was because it was about Iraq and people are like, "Oh, so it is quote-unquote capitalized capitalized-est saying something," yeah. you know, like but that's not this movie, but it doesn't have to be. It's just fantastic on its own. I can't remember the last time I saw a thriller as tense as this. Um, so, yeah, Argo's fucking great.
1: I agree. You probably have it in your top ten because Stokely's in it, though.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clay Duvall is an automatic top ten for me. That's okay. why my number eight um, is going to be American Horror Story Season 2. <laughs> but before, that's we, it
1: should be. before we do get to number eight, uh, how about we listen to another voicemail? I think we should. Why don't we do that? Because that'd be fun. Here's one from Mr. Gabe Powers, who has just been one of our favorite guests and an incredible contributor to the blog over at DirectorsClubPodcast.com. Hey guys,
5: this is Gabe Powers calling with my list of the top ten for the year. Because I work writing DVD reviews and watching old uh, out-of-print horror movies, I tend not to see a lot of movies in theaters. So this list won't include a lot of favorites like The Raid and 21 Jump Street and The Ambassador and End of Watch and Frankenweenie and and Argo and The Cloud Atlas and Wreck-It Ralph and Lincoln and Life of Pi and Rise of Guardians and Zero Dark Thirty and The Master, Silver Langs Playbook. Um, But what I did see uh, is as follows. Number 10, Jiro Jeans of Sushi. Very entertaining and, uh, you know, not as heartwarming as most people say, documentary about a somewhat mad but also lovable guy that makes sushi. Uh, Number nine would be Dread, a nice, simple, straightforward, super gory comic book adaptation. Number eight is the one movie that everybody loves to hate this year, Prometheus, which I understand is disappointing and has huge plot holes and character problems, but I still thought it was really fun to watch and I've probably seen it three times now. Uh, Number seven is Moonrise Kingdom, which sees uh, director Wes Anderson returning to his roots, refusing to grow as a filmmaker and being all the better for it. Number six would be Avengers, the Best and most fun comic book movie of the year, and I guess there's nothing else to say about that. Number five would be *Beast of the Southern Wild, a movie I've seen twice now and I'm still struggling to comprehend on many levels. Number four would be Skyfall, which uh, I still haven't decided if I like more than Casino Royale, but is certainly the prettiest and, uh, Bond movie probably ever, and featuring one of the best villains. Number three and two are kind of a tie between Django Unchained and Cabin in the Woods, both very referential movies covering two of my favorite subjects, horror movies and spaghetti westerns. Uh, Django Unchained is probably the weaker of the two simply because it needs to be longer and there are obvious uh Editing issues there. Cabin in the Woods, uh, hit, uh, but just can't be bothered with. And number one, I believe, will remain number one as time goes on, would be Ryan Johnson's Looper, which again has some narrative issues if you really want to look for them, but was thematically and emotionally the most satisfying movie for me all year.
1: Alright, thank you very
2: much, Gabe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not interesting to see Prometheus on your list, but uh, I'm pretty sure earlier in the year we already had these arguments, so I'm not going to bring those.
1: A lot of people agree with you, though. I'm surprised, but.
2: Aside, a from, lot of people.
1: aside from one scene, that movie didn't do much for me at all, but hey, it's Ridley Scott. He makes yeah. beautiful movies, I guess. Yeah. 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 Like an old man does. So number eight on my list is probably the second of, oh, it's a gym movie. Uh-huh. Oh, here we go. It's one of those movies that he was bound to love and put in his top ten list. It's Bur- bound. <laughs> what? Bound. Bound? Movies you were bound. bound. Oh, I got it. I got no, it. No, move, move on. Move on, move on, Wrong that's year, that's not, though. No, no, doesn't matter. Um, it's a movie that looks at mental illness, self-destructive behavior, it's a movie that could have been, you know, maudlin. But it takes the more sort of uh, slapsticks... Not, no, not slapstick. What was I thinking? The screwball comedy approach because he does it very well. And that would be David O. Russell's Silver Linings Playbook. Um, it's my kind of romantic dramedy, if you will. And I had... Some reservations going into this movie, because I'd read the book last year, and um I absolutely adored everything about it it um it again is a very empathic story in regards to um a bipolar character, and I get really i take it i take offense to people who really sort of focus on just that one character element. In particular, as being like that's the that's the central focus point of this movie because it's not. He has bipolar disorder. Okay, it is not a movie about a guy with bipolar disorder who meets the right girl and automatically he is cured. I don't know where people get this idea from, where the, like that's what the movie's message is, which it is not. That's not the message of the book. It certainly it helps that he meets somebody that. Allows him to see the world a little bit differently, and I think a lot of people sort of project that based on other movies in the past, maybe something like a Garden State or whatever. But um, because it, it's 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 a little bit more deeper than that. It's the 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 characters themselves really go through ups and downs together, and yes, he he definitely finds the right medication, decides to take it, to where when he finally does, you know get on the right course and takes his meds he becomes more balanced and the movie becomes a little bit more conventional it becomes more balanced and less manic and a little bit less fractured because the first i'd say 45 minutes or to an hour or so are very like um jarring and because you're in the headset of somebody bipolar who's going through manic phases and depressive phases more the manic phases definitely because that's David O. Russell's approach is, you know, he he has a lot of quick edits. Um, there's an incredibly effective moment in which uh, Bradley Cooper has like uh, an anxiety attack, and he wants to watch his um, his his old uh, wedding video, and he's determined to find it. And his parents have like, you know, buried it in the um, in in their house somewhere. They like hid it away from him so he doesn't watch it, and he's like, you know, gets them up at 3 in the morning or whatever and tries to uncover it, and he can't find it. And it's really like, you know, he wakes up the whole house, he wakes up the whole neighborhood, he really goes in through a complete manic spell. And the way he edits that sequence is one of the best things I've seen all year. I've never felt more in the mindset of somebody going through um, a panic attack before. And uh, it, it definitely... You know, I I think it's just one of those movies where, you know, you meet the right person and it can help, and it portrays that so beautifully with Jennifer Lawrence's character, um. And I think a lot of people sort of focus on the romant- romantic comedy uh, traditions of like other movies being a part of this movie, and I th- you know like even Chris Tucker playing the token black guy uh-huh. showing up for certain scenes. So is it. So is it a commentary on romantic comedies? Well, that's just what's interesting is you know having the experience of seeing a screening of this, which David O. Russell was in attendance for, and getting his perspective. Uh, he said that he did not really intend for that to be the case, but he, when he watches it now, he sees that as being like mm-hmm. something that happened. As you know, as the film became what it is, like he watches it and he sees that as being a part of the movie, like his own subversion of the romantic comedy genre. Like he said, now I see it almost as like my take on a Jerry Maguire movie. Right, right. You know, my like, you know, think of like uh, the I Heart Huckabee's or the Fighter meets Jerry Maguire. By
2: the way, I've actually never seen a single David O. Russell movie. So,
1: yes, you have. No, I haven't. You've never seen I Heart Huckabee's? No. Oh, wow.
2: I haven't seen a single David O. Russell movie. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean,
1: <laughs> I have nothing to add to this
2: conversation.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I want to know what you think of him at some point. No, we're surely going to cover him eventually. Surely.
2: I, I mean, obviously, obviously Three Kings and oh, I Heart yeah. Huckabees are on my list of yeah. movies to watch,
1: but it just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you really like him. Yeah. Um, you know, and this movie, it I feel like it could go either way with you. I'm... I'm curious because it's one of those movies, I think, that I understand why people would have a negative response towards or kind of be indifferent to because they can look at it as just being like, oh, it's just another one of those kinds of middling movies where it goes from point A to point B to point C and it really brings nothing new to the table. For me, it brings a lot in terms of the the performances and the way David O. Russell approaches this material. And I think he infuses so much personality because he himself suffers from bipolar disorder and because he really wanted to... His son suffers from bipolar disorder and he wanted as from his own words to portray you know a movie of hope but not like have it be like, oh everything... I think people see the ending of this movie and go, oh everything's going to be happy and sunny and everything's going to be better. No, that's not what mental illness is. That's not what bipolar disorder is. But it's not a movie where that is the central theme of the movie. The movie is just a simple romantic comedy done right. And that's what I love about it. And that's what makes me feel good about it when I watch it. And I've seen it twice and I love it more and more. And I think the the portrayal of therapy in this movie is the best I've seen in a long, long time. I will say that the two <laughs> biggest issues I kind of have is The therapist getting a little too close to Bradley Cooper's character, which would never happen in real life, which is fine. I'm willing to forgive that. And then, of course, the fact that there's just one cop in all of um, Philadelphia apparently assigned to um, watch over Bradley Cooper if when he has his episodes, I guess. The same cop keeps popping up. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, I think is part of the comedic effect. That's. That's kind of what David O. Russell brings. He he's really focused on family dynamics, especially in something like *The Fighter*. That I really think he does that so well, where he's just so good at capturing um, families quarreling in a way that that feels really organic and real. And it's just there's a scene where Jennifer Lawrence confronts Robert De Niro. That's one of my favorite moments of the year. And uh, it again, and it's a movie that involves sports, but it's never at the forefront. It just it's a it's another mechanism for families to bond together that i really responded to so i think again silver Lang's playbook is just one of those special movies for me in particular that when i can see people seeing it as a generic romantic comedy but in my mind it's not at all
2: yeah um yeah it's interesting i mean i'll, I'll have to see it eventually nothing to add obviously i I Have't even seen any David o. Russell well, movies. it could
1: be another sort of you know take this waltz situation where it's fine for what it is, but it's not mind blowing and I understand that response, but for me, because there are certain things about it that I have had happen to me or I understand when people get into those patterns mm-hmm. of behavior i I just it really hit me it's cold. also
2: it's also just i mean as far as me not seeing it, it's also just not the kind of movie i I make a priority to see. Cause it just seems like the kind of movie I've seen before, so it's not the kind of movie that it's like I like really go out of my way. I would to say see. it's a
1: movie that you've seen before, but not in this way, not yeah. directed this way, not presented this way. Because David Russell's a really unique filmmaker, in my opinion.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I've I, I, I obviously seen anything directed David O. Russell's way. Um, my number eight is The Avengers. Yay! And I think Marvel. I was one of them. More skeptical people, as far as Marvel's plan to, we're going to make a bunch of movies and then they're all going to have, tie into one team up movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen all of the movies that um, tie into it. The only one I liked was Captain America. The rest, yeah, that was good. I ranged from sort of tolerating to just really hating. Um, I tolerated the Incredible Hulk. I hated Thor and I hated Iron Man too.
1: I liked Iron Man.
2: No, I, first Iron Man doesn't count. Oh, okay. The second... The, it's all... It's the, that's the first Marvel movie. But then it was the next tier that they were all mm-hmm. setting up the Avengers. But, like, I think it actually paid off. And I think I have to kind of eat, eat my words. I don't know if I even talked about it on the podcast. Because I don't think it's the kind of thing that we focused on too much. Uh, superhero movies. But, like, it really paid off. This is a movie that's nothing but payoff. This is a mm. movie where, because we know all the characters going in... Uh, all we get is all these delicious scenes of them fighting and them interacting. And every character interacting with every other character. It's all a different dynamic that's interesting. Um, Marvel did an amazing job of casting really great, charming actors as all of the superheroes. I love Chris Evans. I, uh, you know, Obviously, Robert Downey Jr. is great. Um, the guy who plays Thor, whose name I can't remember right now, is really good.
1: Uh, Chris Hemsworth?
2: Yeah, Chris Hemsworth. Thank you. Um, uh, you know, uh, Scarlett Johansson's... uh, Scarlett Johansson, uh, is fine, and, uh... Jeremy Renner? Jeremy Renner's... whatever. He doesn't get a character. Ironically, the best comic book series of 2012 was Hawkeye. Um, Hmm. and I still... I've I've been telling Jim that he needs to read them, but I haven't actually been lending him the books. But, like, if anyone listening, like, I know... I've I've told a lot of people, and they've been skeptical because the character is Hawkeye. The series... Hawkeye is amazing, but in the movie, it's not great. But like watching all these people play off, obviously the big moment is sort of the argument on the bridge um, where they're all fighting, and like just it—it's just pure joy. Um, and again, that's there's that Joss Whedon. Just he makes these hysterically funny movies. <laughs> this is a movie I was laughing just throughout. It's really funny, and I think more importantly, it's the kind of superhero movie I want to see, which yes. is like I really don't like. I really like The Dark Knight, but the other two movies I don't think are necessarily the right approaches for a Batman movie. Um, you know, The Dark Knight just happens to – all the pieces happen to fall in place, right? But, like, if I want a movie about guilt, I'm probably not going to watch a mo- superhero movie because
1: – You're going to watch Guilty as Charge or Guilty as yeah, right? no,
2: no. Like, if I want to watch a revenge movie, I'm probably not going to watch a superhero movie. If I'm going to watch a movie about, like, redemption, I'm probably – like, there's always better movies than superhero movies because they're just not – like – they're just so tied down by well, we have a certain mythology in the comics and we have to do hit these certain points, and we have to have a certain big name villain, like like there's a lot of approaches where you try to add too much gravity to, to superhero movies and it's like, no, it's a dumbass in a cape. Like like don't overthink this. Um
1: I bet Alfonso Caron could add gravity to superhero movie.
2: I bet he is a children of a man. Um, <laughs> 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 Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Mm-hmm. The Avengers is perfect because what is the main thematic um, conceit of the Avengers? The main con- thematic conceit of the Avengers is hey teamwork. Yeah. <laughs> like that's perfect because it's like I think child. I think superheroes are inherently childish and sure. silly, and if you try to deny that they're childish and silly, there's just going to be a weird disconnect where. Uh, you're just going to have scenes that feel like they're out of a crime film except they happen to have one guy who's dressed in rubber for no reason. And it's weird. But this movie really gets that and it's not ashamed of it but it also is able, through really great casting um, and really great writing, it's also giving the characters enough weight that it's not something that you just see and immediately forget. Um, And it's just... So seeing all these actors play against each other is just delightful. The action scenes work in a similar dynamic where you suddenly... Everyone has uh, has a task in there, mm-hmm. You know, like... like You're like, why the fuck is Hawkeye in this? Everyone else has superpowers. That guy just is, has a bow and arrow. But then you see him sort of calling the shots, and it's like, no, he has a Hawkeye. He's very good at seeing what's going on. He's directing yeah. people. You know, you see Captain America taking leadership. He's not just super... Like, all these people fall in these roles, and that makes that action scene really, really satisfying, even if... Um, I don't think the special effects were all that great in that scene. Um... Not, I don't think they were particularly shoddy, but there was definitely... At no point did I think I was watching anything other than CGI. Um, but I love that. and I love So the whole movie is just a totally delightful experience. And I think people try to discount it just because it doesn't have some kind of big thematic arc. Like, say, Dark Knight does. But I think that its core strength is that it doesn't. And its core strength is that all it wants to be is a damn entertaining film. Um, so The Avengers is my number eight.
1: I completely agree with everything you've said. yeah. This is this next movie especially since I talked so much during Silver Lang's playbook. I don't know if I want to talk too much about this movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Cuz it's a hard movie to talk don't about. Don't say it. a
2: word. Starring Brittany Murphy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that movie in a long time.
2: Hey Jim, if you want to put that in your list, I'll never tell.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah. Look at this. Yeah. She's on fire. Yeah. Maybe you should drink some more. Mm, we should always drink. More. <laughs> um Jesus. So this this is it. Um <laughs> Yeah. This is uh, another big surprise. Well, no, I, 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 I guess I wasn't too surprised because I'm a huge fan of these directors. Hint, hint. Um, here we go. But it's, it's a movie that's really hard to explain why I adored it as much as I did, and it'll probably come up later. I so. like how
2: you drop hints, even though 15 seconds later they're going to get the title. <laughs> like.
1: Um, it's going to probably come up later anyway, and I don't know if I want to explain in great detail why it resonates with me so much. Go ahead. It's unrelentingly cinematic, deeply emotional, intellectually stimulating. Things I look to in movies in general, it's why I love movies. It is Cloud Atlas. Absolutely. It's fantastic. Yeah. We'll talk about Cloud Atlas later, Jim? I think so. Okay, cool. We'll talk about Clowness later. Um, It's hard to talk about, I gotta say. Oh, yeah.
2: Um, I'll tackle that. We'll tackle that later. Yeah. Um, Because it will be coming up for me. Um, My number seven is also going to be very brief because we talked about it. Cabin in the Woods. Woo! Uh, Again, just mind-blowingly great. Um, I do want to note, me and Jim, first time we saw it, we saw it in D Box, which I don't know if you <laughs> I, I don't know about that. I don't know if you are near any theaters that have D Box or if you even know what D Box is. But here's what
1: D Box is. It's when you stick your dick in a box.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was pioneered by Andy Sandberg and Justin Timberlake. No, D Box is It's a a chair that moves. Basically, like, some of those, you know, like, uh, video roller coasters that you go on where, like, the chairs move with the roller coaster and they try to... Like, it's a chair (laughs) that moves, but because this wasn't filmed, like, with the idea that you're on a ride watching it, (laughs) it just, like, wiggles around a lot, (laughs) which you think, oh, that's just super distracting as hell. Mm -hmm. But what actually, it added a whole other layer um, was the first time I saw Cabin in the Woods... It just added another layer of artifice, which ended up making it better, because not only is it referencing all these slasher movies, it ended up referencing uh, William Castle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's having this weird gimmick in the theater. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It felt like like a William Castle touch when we saw it in D-Box. No, I love Cabin in the Woods. It's so great. And then I think a lot of people, they talk about all of the clever, you know, they talk about Richard Jenkins, and they talk about those scenes um, in the control room, which are Fucking oh my brilliant. god! Like those guys are so funny and so dead on. And I probably want to the see... second
1: hardest laugh of the year is Richard Jenkins yelling at the Japanese kids. No, <laughs> fuck <laughs> you. For me, the uh,
2: for me my the biggest laugh in this film is uh, what? Do you know the other the other actor's name? William? Bradley Bradley Brad- Whitford. Bradley Whitford. I think Bradley Whitford going. Uh, <laughs> I just wish it was a merman. <laughs> yeah. Like like Bradley Whitford getting yeah. really hung up on merman because you can totally see that as either like Joss Whedon just idly wondering one day, hey, how come they never made a merman horror movie? Right. And just, like, throwing that in there. It's such a wonderful character moment. But, like, I think, I would say, if I had to pick a flaw of the film, it's that it doesn't actually work as a horror film, whereas something like Scream is actually kind of scary and tense and suspenseful um, and has a lot of clever aspects in that direction. I think this film uh, mostly just works as a comedy, but there are really, there are a couple really tense moments, like, the uh, truth or dare moment when the girl is making out with the oh, God, yeah wolf head. Like, I thought for sure that is was... a scene that anyone like that is a scene that only a true filmmaker who is really inspired would put in there because it's not a scene that necessarily adds to the idea of uh, oh this is something that happens in slasher movies. No one just makes out with like uh, you know stuffed heads in movies but it is just they another example right. of what gives this movie so much more character and flavor and uh just sort of moments that surprise you in that film other than of course the whole third act which is uh, a great great wonderful moment even if it's not a fucking spoiler people so i remember when cabin in the woods first came out everyone's freaking out over not saying anything about the ending that's an uh, annoying
1: trend well no that's that's been a continually annoying trend
2: yeah it always is um cabin in the woods is just absolutely terrific and
1: before we go on are we gonna listen to another voicemail i think we should um, let's do it. This is, uh, Jason Kartinga of the Film Club Podcast.
6: Hey, Directors Club. This is Jason from the Film Club Podcast. Uh, I just wanted to share my top five films of 2012. If my voice sounds different, it's because I just woke up, so bear with me. Uh, I'm gonna get right into it. Uh, my number five is Sinister. Uh, this is a, could have been a pretty Biden unders, uh, thriller mystery film, but I think what elevates it is its tightly written script. Uh, Ethan Hawke's is... Ethan Hawke is asked to pretty much carry the film, uh, and he plays this true crime novelist who's trying to regain his 15 minutes of fame by like uncovering the truth of these victims, these families that were murdered. And, uh, they showcase these murders by, uh, showing you these disturbing super eight films that are just really, really creepy. Uh, and are set to this really cheesy music that plays on top of them, uh, and in the movie itself, it's just really brutal. It plays really dirty with the audience, and I just loved it for that. My number four is The Perks of Being a Wallflower. This is a movie that had a pretty slow start to begin with, and it seemed like your typical coming-of-age film. Uh, but then you get to know the characters. Uh, the three main actors are Logan Lerman, Ezra Miller from uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin, and Emma Watson, of course, Hermione Granger from the Harry Potter films. Uh, and it's just It's about this main kid who goes into high school and he he 's had some mental problems before, but he goes to high school it 's about him uh trying to find his place in the world, and he just meets these people who just share a lot in common and uh you know it's not these kids aren't your typical high school kids; it seems like there's something uh there's something dark in in each of their past uh, that they 're trying to get over, and with becoming friends with one another they 're allowed to get over that and it 's a pretty beautiful movie uh it's just great to spend time with these characters and see their friendship develop so yeah. My number three is Cabin in the Woods. It was my number one for quite a while, but it kind of dropped down. But I love this film. Uh, I'm not really a weeding guy, uh, but I knew going into this, it wasn't going to be a typical horror film. And from the opening with Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford, you just know you're in for something different. Uh, the movie's incredibly clever. And I just love it because not only is it a love letter to cinema, to horror cinema, but it's also pointing out how stagnant the genre has become. And, of course, there's plenty of movies that have done this before. But I just think this one does it really well. And it's just a really fun time. My number two is The Life of Pi. Uh, I think Ang Lee just made a movie with that's purely visual storytelling. And I just loved it for that. It's a really good, rich, movie-going experience uh, about friendship, faith, survival, uh, the power of storytelling. You know, what good stories could uh, say to people and inspire in people. Uh, I didn't really care for the bookends of the movie, but it didn't matter because everything outside of that uh, is just incredible. And the movie made me cry like four times, so that's pretty great. And then my number one film is Beasts of the Southern Wild. Uh, some of my favorite movies, I didn't know what to think of them the first time I saw them. Uh, when I first time I saw Kill Bill Volume 2, I was conflicted. I knew I liked it. I didn't know how much I did. Uh, first time I saw Zodiac, I fell asleep. First time I saw The Fountain... I fell asleep, but these are all movies that I watched a second time, and I just loved, and the reason why I bring this up is it's the same thing with *Beast of the Southern Wild. Uh, First time I watched it, I was conflicted. I didn't really like the father character. I thought uh, I didn't like the film's mentality where these people is kind of like they have this us against them mentality, but then watching it for a second time, I really started to understand the father. I really understood the context of the characters and the world that they live in, Uh, the little girl. Uh, I can't really pronounce her real name, but she plays a character called Hush Puppy, and she's just amazing. Uh, Her narration is incredible. It's so childlike, and in that way, it reminds me of where the wild things are, where you're having this kid who just speaks like a kid, and it just feels real. It feels genuine, Uh, and then the movie itself, just a great score. Uh, The filmmaking just feels fearless. It feels like a celebration, and it just feels different, Uh, and it's just amazing. So, Beast of the Wild, my number one film. I still have a long list of films to see before I compile my official top 10 for the podcast. But thanks again, guys, for letting me share my list. I love the podcast. I think you guys are super insightful. You're offering something different uh, than most people, most podcasts out there. Uh, And just, you know, Jim and Patrick, keep up the good work and keep it going. Take care. Bye.
2: Thanks, Jason. Uh, Probably the only top five list that's going to have Sinister on it. Uh, Yeah. But I no, I have to admit, uh, I don't I didn't really like that film as a whole. But all of the Super 8 stuff was creepy as hell and really fucking effective. Uh, so if you like the whole movie, I can definitely imagine how that stuff would just push it over the edge for you.
1: Uh, yeah, it's in, my, uh, it's in my hard drive. I'm curious about it. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. It's fine. It's a great list. Um, we'll get to a couple of titles, I'm sure, that you mentioned. Um, so we are at number six. That's right. We're and really this,
2: zipping along, aren't we? This
1: is, um, this is a film that Andrew has at number one for this year, and it's been talked about uh, for the past You couple... really love burying the lead. It's been talked about... I don't know where I get this from, actually. Because <laughs> don't most people just say the title up front? They just say the title! But you're just like, I want to talk about a man. A man so great.
2: A man inspired so many...
1: Something Ladies like and gentlemen, theater.
2: I present to you a man. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 it's a little masterpiece theater. I don't know. So, yeah, um, this was uh, brought up a couple of times from other people that I really respect and really like. Uh, I was re- and re- by the I- way, but real quick, I was, refer-
2: <laughs> I was referencing a Money Python,
1: yeah,
2: no. Python sketch with Eric Idle introducing yeah. a singer. I don't know mm-hmm. if people will get that. They'll just like, why are you talking about a man all of a sudden? It's a Money Python sketch. I'm interested. Please
1: go. That's on. good. No, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Um. Yeah. No. I think uh, like a lot of the row three guys. You know, talked up, uh, talked this movie up last year, mm-hmm. and uh, Andrew just mentioned it. So if you heard the voicemail, you already know the movie' title, and it's something I just caught up with myself this year. It's a movie called Cafe de Flore by Jean-Marc Vallée. It's almost like. I don't know it's it's again it's a hard movie to talk about like Cloud Atlas because it depends on your emotional response to it and it's almost like Vanilla Sky done right in a way I mean I guess you could say that that would be open your eyes or however the uh, Spanish pronunciation of that title would be Um, but I still think it's it's a really fascinating film and if you know my biases dreams psychology uh, past lives Regret, <laughs> like all these things are sort of intertwined in this really, um, sort of dreamlike, hallucinatory uh, movie. That it, it it sort of hit me in the same way that Cloud Atlas did, especially by the very end where you find out how things all come together. And I w- I would say that like the lead the lead character um, the, the the main guy I was at first. Am I going to connect with this guy? Cuz he's kind of like an arrogant uh club DJ with, you know, who who's essentially left his wife for a younger girl. And he's very selfish. He's just kind of lost in his own head. But you can tell that he really regrets his decision and he's basically lost touch with his two daughters and everything and he's still trying to m- sort of maintain some emotional stability and by going to a therapist and He's. You can tell that he's still infatuated with his ex-wife. And you've learned very early on exactly why. And a lot of it is tied through their mutual love of, of music. And that's kind of how they created a bond together early in their um, childhood. There's some very Tree of Life-esque moments uh, visually. But also, the way this film portrays memory I thought was exquisite. I thought like... Um, the It felt like you were watching you know like a, like a photo album, but not necessarily like with still frames, but just you really got a sense of uh, a past life in a way that I thought was really unique in the way it was cutting back and forth in certain instances. And it's not really showy. it's not really like the, there's not a lot of camera trickery, but there's really cool editing in this film that I just thought really enhanced the emotion with these characters. It's basically two stories of that are separated by four decades. And one involves like I said this DJ who's kind of having like a midlife crisis. And then there's this other story that takes place in 1969 about a single mother who is raising a 7-year-old with down syndrome. And she's kind of like really struggling with that and then the the little boy has his first crush on another girl with uh, Down Syndrome and the way they have an intense emotional um, connection is really, like, I've never seen something portrayed in that light before. It was really intense. It was like seeing two young you know um, grammar School uh, kids with Down Syndrome struggling with emotion in that way, like feeling intense love at that age is something I've never experienced in a movie before. It was just like, oh my god, like, you know, seeing them in school, like not wanting to leave class because they had to go home to their parents. It was like really heartbreaking. Um, But it's a really intense movie. And then you sort of later find out how these stories sort of tie together in a very Cloud Atlas kind of manner with this idea of the eternal return of people making mistakes and then having to um, suffer the consequences, so to speak. But it's also really about people trying to work through their problems in their own mind in this very interesting way. And it's told visually, but what really stands out for me, it's also a movie about music. Really? It, it's a real, Yeah, because it's... Because of the DJ? That, definitely, but also the way it's edited. And also, there is just music cues... And some of them, like, okay, yeah, you're Pink Floyd or whatever. Like, there's certain music cues you kind of go, okay, I've, heard, I've seen this done in other movies a million times, but the way it's done here really stood out for me and really hit Are you me. saying that someone steps out of a door frame wearing leather and Back in <laughs> Black starts playing? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly just, beca- like, a certain character has an intense emotional response to a particular song, like a Cure song that is a motif in within itself Um, this director has done a couple of other films one with Emily Blunt called The Young Victoria and another one that I know got a lot of acclaim called Crazy Uh, I've I've heard his films described as very hypnotic and I would completely agree with that you want to hear a really big bias with me that's been brought up many times before in the past I don't know if I will ever hear Seeger Rose the same way again after seeing this movie, it's um, it's beautifully used in this film, and really um, overrides the uh, the use uh, that it's um, that's used the way it's used, I should say, in Vanilla Sky. I think this movie is just really uh, um, special. Like i would never seen anything like it. Uh, like I said, it does have some Malick esque moments in the way it portrays memory and people trying to work through their problems internally. But I think it's also really uh, devastating by the end when you sort of learn how it all ties together. But it's also something that I think is ambiguous as well. So you can sort of take it into account in your own way. I love those movies where you can interpret it differently, like one person will have a different experience watching this than another. So I think it's a very sincere film, that is very rewarding and i can't wait to it might even be higher who knows i can't wait to rewatch it again i only watched it once and i thought it was compelling and very beautiful so i i really recommend people check out cafe de flore
2: yeah i haven't even heard about it uh, before uh, it was on was it andrew james's list yeah yeah, I yeah it was on been... kurt's i might have been kurt's number
1: 1 is it, in was, it was it was
2: it was it a, was it a tiff was or was yeah.
1: Has it had a real release out here? I don't know if it had a huge release out here. and I'm not even sure if it's available on Blu-ray or not. But I want to pick it up. I want to own it. It's great.
2: So yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, I feel like I'm getting stepped on a whole bunch. Because so far, my whole uh, first five movies I've listed, you mentioned in your honorable mentions or in your list. But uh, I would like to talk about The Deep Blue Sea, my number six. Oh yeah. um, Briefly. Because uh, not only uh, did you talk, did we talk about it with honorable mentions and uh, just the fact that uh, Simon Buff- Russell Beale is sort of... We also gave morning. a really
1: long recent review of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely, on the Chan-Wook Park episode. So if you'd like yeah. to hear a longer review of that. But uh, it certainly just really held for me and stuck with me in a way that a lot of movies don't. And it's just a movie I value so much just because mm-hmm. it's the kind of movie that they don't really make many of anymore. Um, which is just a really smart, really well-acted melodrama yeah. um, without any kind of hook, without any kind of sort of interesting catch or anything. It's just like really well put together really well done. Um, it's just, I just keep thinking about it and just little moments and sort of like the outburst of, uh, ah, I wish I knew actors. The guy played Loki, uh, Tom Middlesell. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, that's it. Yeah, the out- outburst of or Tom Hiddleston. Maybe Hiddleston. Hiddleston. The outburst of Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, like outside that bar, Fuck, just yeah. freaking out on um, on uh, lead actress
1: <laughs> Rachel Weisz.
2: Rachel Weisz. I mean, we're also drinking. Like that doesn't help my my name recall, but that just happens to be like one of my worst. It happens. Like if you know, you know, I always have to look shit up uh, online when I'm talking online, but when I'm talking on. Uh, podcast, I have to rely on Jim, but yeah when he 's just freaking out on Rachel Weiss outside the bar and just that again that tunnel moment that uh you know we discussed uh and just all sorts of and that you know that opening dream sequence there's just so much about deep blue sea that I just find so valuable and so enthralling and it's just really blows me away um and it's just, again just the kind of movie that isn't made anymore, so uh it's the kind of film I can find myself revisiting a lot more often uh, than a lot of other uh, films just because um, it's so rich and all the characters are so well uh, realized.
1: And it's on Netflix Instant, people. Check it out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's really yeah, moving. It's, it's underappreciated, for sure. Yeah. Um, there are certain people who you know, have put it in their top tens and stuff, but I think for the most part, because it doesn't have some kind of flashy story that goes along with it, um, whether you know whether you're talking about Django or you're talking about The Master or you're talking about Cloud Atlas, like there's a lot of story. Like a lot of films, they have some kind of story that film journalists are able to sell, and they're able to pitch, and they're able to write articles about. Like, oh, it's the film about you know, you know, it's a first film from from the newly transgender Lena, you know, Lena Wachowski about that sort of thing, and like, or it's oh, it's Django, and this is Quentin Tarantino, and here's what he has to say about spaghetti westerns. Like, there's a lot of like, hooks. people people sell yeah, movies on points, stuff yeah. like that, and so when a movie like this, which is just amazing, but doesn't have necessarily those kind of hooks in it, re- gets released, it can be overlooked, and that's kind of sad. So, you
1: love Douglas Sirk, and a movie that's recommended Yeah, by Yeah, Rogers. like, it's
2: not the sort of easy, it's not the sort of easy, it's not full of the sort of easy signifiers that you can use to sell it on your uh, friends who... You know,
1: it worked for me. That's all Patrick had to do is text me. It's like Douglas Sirk, and I went bloop.
2: Right, top of the Netflix queue. You and about like maybe half a dozen gay guys who listen to this podcast, Uh-oh. but no one else is really into Douglas Sirk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good old John Waters.
2: So uh, that was my number six, the Deep Blue Sea. Uh, really great, not a bad performance in it.
1: Here's another movie that's going to get mentioned. I would be shocked if it wasn't mentioned. Yeah, yeah later on. Yeah, number five. No matter how juvenile, impractical, or nonsensical, there is hardly any love greater in the world than your first around the age of... It's like you're giving a commencement <laughs> speech. It's like you're sending a bunch of
2: graduates off into the real world. Like, what?
3: <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't need to interrupt. It's great. But...
1: See if you if you interrupted oh. and it was like annoying or not funny then I'd be pissed but it's it's always great it's a joy Go ahead Uh the classic The, <laughs> the, the oh, man that joyful innocence that impulsivity of just like going for broke and uh running to the beach with the one you love never captured better and then in Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom, oh, I love it so much! I can't get over how good that film is.
2: It's really good. I know the only the only reason it's not the only movie everyone's talking about this year is because it's, Wes Anderson has already done such great work in this. Yeah, mode.
1: and I know people are like, man, not not as good as Rushmore, man. <laughs> you
2: know, when but you, but like, yeah, when you say not as good as Rushmore, basically you're saying not as good as one of the greatest films ever. I know. It's like dismissing a movie going, "Eh, it's not Citizen Kane." Like it's not
1: like Rushmore is one of the is a perfect film. Yeah, he's so good at capturing that period, that coming of age period and but this time And time period of the 60s. Yeah, it's th- first film he actually made that gorgeous. set in the 60s. It's a gorgeous cin- like cinematography and you know, like I said watching it at the landmark with little scratches and the graininess, graininess of the quality of the print and everything. But really, I mean, you know, you can definitely say that like you know, maybe the adult characters aren't as fully realized. Mostly just the Bill Murray, Francis McDormand. Um Have you watched parent. Last Summer yet? Yeah, I loved Last Summer. It reminded me very much so. That's what I was The feeling say. the feelings evoked were very similar. Um I think in just in terms of capturing that time when like you feel these possibilities with the the new newfound feelings of love that Oh my god! Like how emotionally stirred you are, and like you just kind of want to dive right in. And every like every, all the colors feel vivider, more vivid when you mm-hmm. feel uh, that kind of love and precociousness. And shot through the, the lens of someone like Wes Anderson. And I kind of knew when this movie started. You know, okay, yeah, that the, the, the tracking shot throughout the house, the needle drop. This is a Wes Anderson world. I'm happy to be here. It's very comforting to me. I don't think he's done it, but I still I don't think he's done a tracking shot like that through the house like in other films. I feel like there's one like through the train and Darjeeling Limited that's kind of similar maybe.
2: Well, that's like very like one of the amazing things about the tracking shot in this film is it's just it's so just dimensions. It's just yeah, yeah, here's yeah, width, yeah, yeah. here's depth, here's yeah. height. It's like it's like it's so I mean obviously we talked about this just last episode with the Buster Keaton but I love the idea Mm -hmm. of filmmakers sort of establishing a three dimensional space with the camera and that's what I really love about this in a way that and I don't think Wes Anderson's really done it like I think for all the for all the people say oh it's more of the same uh, it's like I don't I honestly think he's pushing it and he's still being very inventive and daring, and
1: oh fuck yeah! I mean, I, like I worry that you know the whimsy is going to get old, but it doesn't for me, and I I don't
2: because he's genuinely funny. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of filmmakers who have a lot of whimsy, but they're not actually funny people. Right. Like they're not actually like writers who think of good jokes and funny characters and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Like that the, these his sort of idiosyncrasies and the mannered quirk, I, I don't I don't feel shortchanged by when when he does it. I mean. I think definitely in Life Aquatic, uh, I feel that way a little bit, and Darjeeling Limited the most. But I, I don't know, it, just the the amber colored hues and just the look and the feel, the the world he creates here, the island, and I really love Bruce Willis in this movie. I think everything about this film worked for me. It really. Uh, I was surprised at how invested I was and didn't like think. Oh, it's kind of cartoony or something. I thought, like, the, the, the feelings that it captured at that time of adolescence really felt genuine. I feel
2: like the way that Darjeeling Limited almost feels like it's trapped by its Wes anderson Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. this movie feels freed by its Wes Anderson-iness. Where yeah, it's like they were trapped in a Like, the same way that in Royal Tenenbaum's, Alec Baldwin narrates, like, just the beginning for no, like, Alec Baldwin doesn't really show up later. It's not. <laughs> Like there just happens to be a narrator, like Bob Balaban, and this is like addresses the camera directly. and even has a moment where he has to turn a light on so the camera can see him. Like that yeah. sort of that that sort of freedom, um, I think, is shows Wes Anderson as peak, um, as opposed to sort of Wes Anderson feeling trapped by the the constraints that he's making a Wes Anderson. He's making
1: movie. movies that seem more and more like storybooks, and I think that having yeah. that with Fantastic Mr. Fox,
2: I think, and I, I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is his. Um, before this was his second best movie, um, because I like yeah, I I maybe third. I think it fits better. Like I really don't like Royal Tenenbaums. I know you're crazy, though. but that's okay.
1: <laughs>
2: but uh, but like yeah, and it's and it's a very fitting. And he found a way in this, um, whether through the cartooniness of um, the kid being struck by lightning and getting back mm-hmm. and just being blackened like he's you know like he's Wile E. Coyote or something. Like, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Totally. Like this is a movie that. That plays with reality in that way, but it doesn't. It doesn't drop the emotion. Number
1: five aspect, Moonrise though. Kingdom.
2: Yeah, my number five, finally a movie you haven't mentioned yet, Holy Motors. Oh yeah, this is a movie. The way that the master, um, kind of this is in my movie, top twenty-five. The way that Math wow, that
1: low. Yeah, again, I need to think about it more. And I, I mentioned that when we reviewed it, it's it's something that when I first saw it, it, it the expectations going in for it, I was like, hmm. This was not at all like I was expecting. Something more surreal, more quirky, more. Uh, I like don't with, almost think you're expecting.
2: I don't think you're expecting something more surreal because I don't know how something could be more surreal, Jim. Well, I think it, <laughs> like <laughs> no, I mean, what like, movie is more surreal than Holy Motors? I
1: was expecting like I mean the, the the genre hopping, uh, like threw me for a loop in terms of where it went with like the character dying, you know, the deathbed sequence yeah. and. The the, the, what, the more dramatic stuff, I was like, really, we're going here. I think, and I think we talked about this um, when Brian,
2: when me. Brian when Brian Talerico was on. But I think this is just and uh, one of my other than seeing more movies in theaters. One of my uh, film resolutions of 2013 is to read less about movies. Um, I if, would agree with if that. I hear if I see on Twitter that everyone's talking about a movie, I know that's a movie I should see. I don't have to keep reading and seeing what they thought, and then having that sort of. Make give me certain expectations that then there's. I think and that hurt my viewing. It's really unfortunate that if you know, in order to be, you know, if you're an active film viewer, then you're going to have these lo- waves of backlash where people. Um, and again, I talked about this briefly, but just to to sort of sum it up again, the uh, the idea that. Um, people who saw it at Cannes had no idea what to think and were just blown away by the ingenuity and the inventiveness and just the sheer willing to change what it was. So they all r- raved about how amazing and funny and thrilling yeah. it was. They've, they they said they which what they didn't mention as much was how melancholy it was. And then so people then were later watching it and were like, oh, that was a lot sadder and less fun than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. When you know both aren't right. Both it is both. I mean both are right and both are wrong in that. Because um, it's both things, but this is a film that, unlike sort of the master, which sort of strong in my opinion, like this is a film that just the more I think about, it, the more I love it, and I'm like, oh my god, that was amazing! Like that huh. whole that whole um, motion uh, capture sequence. I thought that was cool. Like who thought of that? Who thinks that? Like it's so surreal and it's so perfect. And you know, I I'll go ahead and pick on somewhere again because it's a horrible movie and I don't mind picking on it. Like oh god, like if you want to talk about all the, the show. The, like for if you want everything about that those long shots where he's wearing the plaster of Paris on his face and you just hear him breathing like
1: like oh I love
2: that. The, those sort of bullshit ponderous shots like no that all everything said in those shots is said with a lot more verve and a lot more excitement in Holy Motors in just the absurd lengths that he has to go like the idea that oh yeah he's in motion
1: capture so it's more freeing, but really he has to do these all weird acrobatics and like yeah that's I know. It's he, he, he deserves he deserves some awards. For oh that my show. god,
2: that's that that man's amazing. And honestly, it was really hard to choose Joaquin it was, Phoenix. It's, it's over... more of a head
1: scratcher for me. But I feel like again, the more I hear well, what people it, talk what, about what it, makes you what makes you scratch your head about it? I think I talked. Let's it, talk about it. Well, I just <laughs> I talked about it more when we talked about it before. It was more of just I wasn't sure. Like again, other than you know the moment where the boss comes into the limousine and sort of talks about you know where the what, like you know why what the purpose of why he was doing all these things i wasn't and then again I've, but i i feel like the film very just on basis of
2: not making of of very aggressively making sure that one scene doesn't connect to the next the fact that he's a beggar woman in one part yeah. and then the next he's in motion capture gear like it tells you and, and before all that, before he even gets in the limo, there's a surreal moment where a man wakes up in a theater and then watches an audience, and then there's a dog. Like, the idea of trying to figure it out, quote unquote, mm-hmm. what's going on, like, it tells. Like, I, I mean, I'm a very firm believer movies teach you how to watch them, and oh, yeah. this movie taught you don't worry about that. That's not important.
1: And don't worry about the emotional connection to each story either. It's like, I was kind of like. Am I supposed to... Like, what am I supposed to get out of the whole experience is what I felt after it was over, especially when I see the guy with monkeys In I short, everything. Okay. You're supposed to get
2: everything out of it. You're well, supposed Well, I like to... the
1: idea of what, how you describe it as it being the ultimate film festival movie. Yeah,
2: because it is a film festival within a movie. <laughs>
1: yeah. And that, 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 to me, makes like, perfect the say, sense. Yeah.
2: I, uh, I think it was Michael D'Angelo. Um, really great critic, by the way. If you don't read Michael D'Angelo's work, he's on AV Club, but he also has uh, One of my his favorites. own website. Yeah, he's really great. He described it as the ultimate, uh, I think it was him, it might have been someone else, but he described it as the ultimate film festival movie in that regard because it's sort of a film festival unto itself because the idea is about the possibility of movies and when you're at a film festival and you're watching like five movies a day, that's very much in the forefront of your mind. Mm -hmm. But, so, like that made me start thinking about it in a different way and stop trying to figure out exactly what each um, scene meant and just sort of really relish in the fact that despite the fact that I had no idea who the woman, like, crying at the foot of the dying man's bed was. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, I was moved by that, though. Like, that was really moving and really sad. Um, like, there are precious few scenes in this film that don't affect me in some way. I would say the Kylie Minogue musical number, not so much. Not I would, so much. I would say, in their part, like, he, like, attacks a man who's eating at a cafe or something. <laughs> or, like, the, cab, oh, yeah. or the, ta- the limo driver does. But, like... Yeah, like everything in this movie, it, it just explodes your mind. It's like, oh shit! Like, yeah, of course movies can do that. Of course movies can do that. They, they, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They, you know, And it's all about the exciting it possibility. Be the the power, yeah,
1: the power of cinema. Of films. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: yeah, I will. Yeah, I was the same way the first time I saw it. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, I don't think I, I think I get it. I don't think I enjoyed it. But the more I think about it, the more I love it, and the more I can't wait to watch it again. And I want to watch it with people and I want to see their reactions. Well, maybe
1: I'll get to that point as well. But yeah. I mean, I still, I still love it. It's still and in my just top twenty-five. Dennis, yeah,
2: Dennis Levant. Well,
1: I mean, there's a lot of great movies. This I year. guess
2: you're, t- I mean, my top twenty-five would include every film I saw this year because I didn't see twenty-five
1: films. Oh this shit! Year. No, my top twenty-five is awesome. Anyway, I mean,
2: uh, let's go to a voicemail, Jim. Okay.
7: Hi guys, it's Randy with his uh, annual top films. In this case, here the top fifteen. In this case, it's the top 25 of 2012 because I just love way too many movies. Number one, actually shared the top, uh, I have two films that share the top spot, The Expendables 2 and Universe Soldier Day of Reckoning. They're both amazing films, and I mean, there's only two good movies I saw this summer. And those were The Expendables 2 and Prometheus. Uh, number two is Jack Reacher. Number three is Django Unchained. Number four is Looper. Number five is Shame. Amazing Michael Fassbender kind of performance there. Number six is 21 Jump Street. Maybe a fan of Channing Tatum. Number seven is Rock of Ages. Number eight is Prometheus. Number nine is Get the Gringo. Number 10 is The Raid Redemption. Number 11 is the Total Recall remake. Number 12 is Safe. Number 13 is Skyfall. Number 14 is The Bay, an amazing found footage for a movie by Barry Levinson of all people. Number 15 is Dark Shadows. Number 16 is The Three Stooges number 17 is Goon, number 18 is Magic Mike, number 19 is The Avengers, number 20 is Project X, number 21 is Chronicle, number 22 is Cabin in the Woods, number 23 is The Hunger Games, which is a lot better than I expected it to be, number 24 is Resident Evil Retribution, and number 25 is Rec. 3 Genesis. And of course, honorable mentions, Number one, The Grey. Number two, The Amazing Spider-Man. Number three, Wrath of the Titans. Number four, American Reunion. Number five, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Number six, Haywire. Number seven, VHS. Number eight, Abraham Lincoln vs. Zombies. I shit you not, the lead performance is actually really great. Number nine is Six Bullets, another Van Damme film. Number ten is Casa de Mi Padre. Number eleven is Taken 2. Number twelve is The Divide. And Number thirteen is The Victim. My eh list where I didn't really care for these films. Lockout is number one. Number two is Judge Dredd 3D. Number three is John Carter. Number four is Men in Black 3. And of course, I have my shit list. Number one is Detention. Number two is Cosmopolis. And number three is The Dark Knight Rises. Those are the only three films I really didn't care for this year, except I'll even give The Dark Knight Rises a bit of credit because I like Tom Hardy's performance and I love the opening sequence but other than that I really didn't care for that film well that's my list guys and I love listening to y'all's podcast and I can't wait to be a guest again whenever y'all can have me back on bye
2: (laughs) well I guess I guess it wouldn't be Renny if he didn't like every goddamn action movie (laughs) except Red apparently I don't know the Expendables
1: and Universal Soldiers. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Rennie.
2: I'm glad you... I'm always glad you called I man. do, too. I'm glad... Here's the thing about Rennie, all right? I think I genuinely think he has horrible taste in movies, and I'm not going to sugarcoat that, but he watches more movies than most people mm-hmm. I know. He watches a lot of movies, so... He's very so,
1: enthusiastic. I really admire that he, like, he watches he, all
2: that. He cultivated that horrible taste, is my point. Like, he really... Like, he really owns that shit, and... For some reason, yes, it's charming. Yeah. Well, no, it's very, it's very. Char- yeah. <laughs> We're talking about him like he's a special needs kid. Hey, ready? Thanks for calling in.
1: Thanks, Renny. oh man, we love you.
2: Yeah. Not a fan of John Carter of Mars, huh? Well, who knew? Somebody on a,
1: that emailed us is though.
2: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, what are we at number four?
1: Number 4 Patrick. Okay, cool. What's your what's your number 4? So there is a, a a movie that made me cry all the tears in the world. I got to say and uh, it's a shocker. John Carter. It's not. Um, <laughs> the shocker. <laughs> shocker from West Craven. No. It's um a movie that make um, the saddest music in the world. The guy that <laughs> 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 It's a movie that's sad and uh-huh. hilarious mm-hmm. and profound,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it involves a stick figure oh um it's a it's an animated film, and I first learned about it through um Mike D'Angelo who put it I believe in his top fifteen of this year uh-huh and it's interesting because. Last year, when we did our favorite films of the year, um, Stephen Ray Morris, I think, may have left us a message saying that Part Three of this trilogy of animated films was his number one of the year. Now he saw it. A, he saw it like a special screening. Yeah, yeah. And basically, what happened this year was that all three short animated films were tied. It's sort of a
2: triptych. There's three short anime films that are meant to be seen as one. Yes. Yeah, it's a triptych.
1: Basically. And so they're all strung together now, officially, finally. And it's called It's Such a Beautiful Day by animator Don Hertzfeldt. He's made some very twisted shorts throughout the years.
2: Rejected is probably the most famous that that went viral, mm-hmm. um, which is, it's a very also extremely funny.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it even got nominated for an Oscar if I'm not mistaken. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, it made me feel almost as much emotion for an hour as however long Tree of Life was, mm-hmm. and
2: it's it, actually quite similar to Tree of Life. Yeah. I should say I've not seen the other two fil- short films. I've only seen the film the short film that he released in 2006, the first yeah. one called Everything Will Be Okay. But I will say that if it came if I included it this year, it would be my number one because Everything Will Be Okay is one of the greatest animated films I've ever seen. And also on YouTube
1: by the way. Parts 2 and 3. Yeah. Just is incredible. So I was beside it, myself while watching this thing, and it's I hard to talk. It's I couldn't hard to move. really
2: put into words what makes it so powerful yeah. because it is stick figures. It is very cartoony.
1: Yeah, and even Colin says, "I'm not gonna. No, I'm not gonna get involved with stick figures. It's not something. <laughs> it's there's just no way. It's not. I need. I need more ambition than that. I'm like you this have is no nothing idea. but ambitious. This is extremely. You have ambitious. no idea how ambitious this is, and how what it becomes is it
2: throughout. If the other two films are like the first film, then I imagine they deal with someone struggling with the meaning of life. Yes. So it's, it, it's <laughs> you the, want to talk about ambition?
1: It's the unraveling of the human mind, mm-hmm. told visually, Just and it's psychosis,
2: pu- pure existential terror, and psychosis. Yes.
1: It's like watching dementia portrayed in like visually, and I like felt like panic and dread and euphoria. I felt like almost every emotion I could feel. And it's hard to exactly say, like, specifically what is so great about it other than how he manages to pull it off with more than just the stick figure stuff. He, I mean, he integrates real, you know, like, imagery that you yeah, see. Yeah, we should say, I think
2: one of the things that makes him so such a successful animator, and this even applies to something like Rejected, which I think is mostly played for comedy, even mm-hmm. if it does have sort of a little bit of the anxiety and terror towards the end that, that is hinted at... It sort of hints at that, that is sort of portrayed in this film. Like what makes it so po- powerful is that if you, you come in with certain expectations because of the stick figures, and then through interesting uses of light, and making yeah. you very acutely aware of uh, of his animation techniques, and it's, uh, it's almost... No, that's not the right word. <laughs> I was gonna say it's Brechtian, but it might be the opposite. But it's it's basically like there are scenes, like there are effects he gets by shining like flashlights on the page, right, right, and taking frames from that. So like he doesn't. It's not just dealt with as far as pen and paper. Um, he is very experimental as far as different ways he incorporates footage and how he edits and, and the how he sound plays. design, sound design, especially and how he plays yeah. with the frame, like. Because he works on such a simple level, he's able to subvert expectations so amazingly.
1: Absolutely, they, they, there's just these hallucinatory sequences that are, I mean, they have they they have like uh, like these 2001 esque special effects kind of like integrated into the visuals where you see them like struck by lightning and like there's sped up and slowed down, played backwards, panned left to right. Just, if you listen to this with headphones, you're really going to freak now, out. Now, the
2: three short films are, the first part is Everything Will Be Okay, the second one is I Am So Proud of You, and the third one is It's Such a Beautiful Day. But the whole, ask you, film,
3: uh, the, the, the whole film... The whole film is, 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 is one, it's also day. called
2: It's Such a Beautiful Day. I, are the second and third parts, um, do they follow the same character? Yes. Okay, so it's this, it's this character who's like slowly drifts in a, who the meaning of life sends him into a psychosis. Basically, and. Yes. And the... the search
1: for it and he <laughs> loses his mind in ways where it is very Eraserhead-esque by the end I mean it's it's kind of like I don't know if he's found bliss per se or if he's just <laughs> so lost inside of his own head that he's he's almost like comatose inside psychosis if you will it's just kind of like a really sort of uh life affirming but also terrifying feeling you get at the end of the movie it's it's hard to describe it's mm-hmm. very magical it's something that i just couldn't believe it when i was watching i'm like i can't i've never seen anything like it i
2: felt the same way about the first part and yeah again i i imagine if i saw this the full film
1: well i will be buying the i don't i don't buy as much many dvds as i used to due to having to live in the city and paying rent now but i am gonna be making it a point to support this filmmaker, this animator especially, and you will be borrowing this. And yeah, absolutely.
2: He's, I think he's definitely one of the most powerful and one of the most important animators. You don't need to be seen. your Paranorman, guys. It's fine. Yeah. Make sure you see. Yeah! yeah. Speaking, speaking of people giving animation way too much of a chance, this is actually what animation can achieve. And yes. This is actually what fucking, like, real... Like, this is the actual limits. It's not just, oh, we can make a fun stop-motion movie that kind of resembles Amblin Entertainment and uh-huh, uh-huh. in circa 1986. No, this is fucking, like, just, like, jaw-dropping. Um, uh, not just jaw-dropping uh, beautiful, but just jaw-dropping painful and jaw-dropping inventive and, oh, yeah. my God. Like, I haven't even seen the film, but I have seen uh, – I've seen one-third of it, and that's enough for me to know that, like, fucking – Trust me. You don't fuck you with
1: you will be completely uh, awestruck. I would love to
2: cover Don Hertzfeld
1: sometime. Yeah, I f- I feel like he needs to put out more films. Like well, Deadpool. he does. Sh- he just sh- He just focuses on short. I think this Pretty is much. his first. I think. I think these. Even though it's all strung together. Even though short it's strong, films. Even though it's three short
2: films strung together, I think this is his only feature. Right. But it's a masterpiece. You know, number four. Absolutely. Um. Uh, my number four would be <laughs> Moonrise Kingdom, which we already talked about. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. You keep you, you keep up. Uh, you're, you you uh, you know, you keep getting there before I do. But I do want to talk about one of the things that make Moonrise Kingdom so great is it's the first Wes – like Wes Anderson's dialogue is is sort of characterized by the fact that the characters are often preternaturally wise but also immature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously Rushmore was a great example of this. Um, and that 's what makes Rushmore so great is that even though um, even though all the adults and all the children sort of feel like they 're in their place, they also feel like they 're interchangeable and it says a lot about them as people and about sort of where they shut down emotionally and where they need to grow emotionally and you know um, and this is very much the same way um sure I think this is his funniest movie, and that 's saying a lot because I really think Rushmore's like just. Absolutely mm. dropped dead hysterical, but I think this is his funniest movie. Um, it's one of the only films in which I really love Edward Norton. I mean, he's a good actor and he's been in good movies, but I usually kind of despise his characters. <laughs> like he always comes, like these he, the characters he always plays are sort of dicks usually. And this is the film where I just want to give him a hug. Yeah,
1: that's probably true. I mean, yeah,
2: I mean, I, he's amazing in Twenty Fifth Hour, but that doesn't mean yeah. he's not a dick.
1: Jiminy Cricket, he flew the coop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's I so love great. the way he delivers lines.
2: Oh, he's so great. Um and of course, again, it's painful. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing more awkward than sort of adolescent, early adolescent, pre adolescent like sex and like oh. sexual desires. And like he really rings the number one amount of like he rings as much awkward out out of that as he can. Yeah. Um, without feeling exploitative, like, at no point are you like, ooh, he's getting off on this. No, of course not. Like, yeah oh, no. It's all character-driven, and it's amazing. Um, I mean, I imagine most of you have seen Moonrise Kingdom, and if you don't like it, it's because you don't like Wes Anderson, and nothing I could say could possibly change your mind. Um, but if you do like Wes Anderson, I can't understand why you would ever dismiss this as, oh, it's just him doing... Because it's him at the top of his game, you know? Like, you know, there's just some filmmakers who, when they're at the top of their game, it it doesn't matter if it resembles their previous work, it's to be celebrated. And he is someone to be celebrated. And even though, like, a lot of the film, it feels like you're looking at Wes Anderson's Pinterest. Like, it feels like he's (laughs) just like... yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, like, he's just like, oh, here's a tape deck that I, from the 60s, isn't that neat, like... Some of it, uh, especially when the kids are like cataloging all the stuff they have, it's just, those are the parts where it's like Wes Anderson being indulgent in really annoying ways. But they're sort of. Uh, but it's
1: coming from a sincere place, and I think that it's he's not doing well it just I, to do it.
2: I would say that I would say less that it's coming. I don't care if it's coming from a sincere place. It's still, kind of annoying. I would say just more that it doesn't take up a lot of time. <laughs> like it's oh, quick. Yeah. You quickly get over it. Like I, I don't doubt that he loves the '60s, but that doesn't make it any less annoying. You know. Uh, when he goes into that little phase where he's just like looking at neat things and like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a battery-operated record player. Like, okay, we get it. Um, but yeah, on the whole, this movie's hysterical, and it's the first movie that actually has children in it. Um, like, and then his dialogue fits amazingly well in the mouths of children.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: And it's playful, and in a way that when the cameos show up, when Harvey Keitel shows up, when Jason Schwartzman shows up, it doesn't feel like oh he's just doing a cameo it feels right. like of course it does because he's being playful he's fucking around it's the same way that in Django Unchained when uh, Franco Nero shows up you're like of course, it is. of course he just shows up for no reason because he's fucking Franco Nero and it's fucking Quentin Tarantino like um, it fits so everything about Moonrise Kingdom is just brilliant it's one of two movies I saw twice in theaters this year the other being Cabin in the Woods and both of them are just because they're the most enjoyable films of the year and just brilliant I love them so, so that's my
1: number four we were bound to get to this movie eventually mm-hmm. and you know we've been, getting, dot com. We've, been <laughs> we've been uh been agreeing for the most part yeah and uh, but it's it's this is one of those movies where you know when i when i hear people talk about it and kind of go man it's not that good man I, I kind of get sad. When you, whenever you hear ducks talk about this film. <laughs> I get kind of sad. Yeah. Because this is one of those movies that, much like last year with the future, really hit me in a very personal way. Mm-hmm. Small time crooks. And um, <laughs> I got I to gotta say, it's... Um, I'm looking at my DVD
2: collection right now. I'm going to keep naming movies until you name it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Take this, Waltz. Okay. Okay um is number 3 for me because uh i got i i i just in the same way that uh away from her allowed me to process my uh grandmother getting alzheimers and seeing that story portrayed in that light this movie really uh <laughs> revealed a lot about my Long term relationship I was in in a way that I'd never seen before. And did it make you realize things that you hadn't realized before? Certainly. Um, it's a hard movie for me to like not get worked up over in terms of like how uh, personal it, it feels mm-hmm. when I watch it. And because it doesn't it's,
2: hurt that Michelle Williams is in it.
1: It doesn't hurt that Michelle Williams is in it. It doesn't hurt that they use my favorite song of all time. Yeah, Um, It's really interesting to hear people sort of harp upon, like, I guess how, you know, the, the themes are spelled out to you in certain moments, and I realize that Sarah Silverman sort of, you know, does that ad nauseum, and I don't know if I agree that the whole movie is about, oh, old things get new... And, you know, just the, oh, you don't go filling a void, blah, blah, blah. I don't know if that's what I the, the overall message of the film is. What do you think the message of the film is? Um, internal frustration with yourself. Right. And where does the internal frustration come from? I think it just comes with restlessness. Yeah,
2: and where does restlessness come from?
1: It comes from depression and not being happy with everything that you're... I don't
2: think it comes from... It, I don't think in this film... I mean... I, I well, wanted I to give, that, I wanted to give you your piece. The first I thing, want to give you your piece about what it means to you, but this is for me the key of why this film isn't that great. I think the restlessness comes from the fact that she becomes bored. Thus old things become, you know, new things become old.
1: I think she's bored with herself and everything, not just the relationship. And what do you mean? What I, what else cuz well, like the first the first, cuz the
2: affair she's not bored with, what
1: what else is she bored with? I think she's bound to become bored with the affair which is Portraying. Right, right, again, but again, that's, that's she's she's gonna, just... It, because she's bored with herself, she's bored with everything. The first shot is her looking bored in general. And then the last shot no, the, is bored. Okay, the first <laughs> shot
2: is her not doing anything. And when you are presented a character without any context, yeah, it's not exciting,
1: but... Yeah, and then you watch it, like, three times. Like, I have, I get more of that feeling of, like, I have no identity in the fact that she's, like... Childlike throughout the, the majority of the movie, she never really grew up into herself. And you know, again,
2: though, I think that is why she falls into the trap of looking for the new thing, and thus yeah. the main thrust of the film is is the fact that you can't go looking for the new thing, and then that's and that's in fault, and then that's a fault you fall into I think it's a part of trapped. the movie.
1: I don't think it's the overriding theme. I, I don't know. I think it's definitely a part of her character. I think it's a part. Of the world that these characters live in. I don't know if it's what I'm gravitating towards when I'm watching it, though. I definitely think, you know, her saying it over and over again in the shower scene, like, reiterating it is kind of annoying because it's not something I like in a movie when one person says, old things get new, and then Sarah yeah. Silverman says, old things get well, new. Well, I mean, if you want to bring, if you I bring think it that's... back to
2: the first scene, the first scene is her wearing an adultery... A sign that says she's an adulteress, and then they simulate throwing rocks at her. Mm, you don't think that's too on the nose? No, <laughs> you, don't, you don't think that's oh, too no. on the nose? Oh, I wonder what's going to happen
1: next. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just like that's the thing. Is kind of like I mean, I'll I think you, I think people. I'm are... not
2: trying to deny you the strong emotions you felt from it. Well, and yeah. I don't think. I don't think this is the kind of film that you should you should say oh well you didn't actually feel it because it's not well made or whatever like you felt that you felt yeah. that I'm not going to try tonight but I'm just saying
1: there is a like bleep
2: there's yeah. I'm a turn my ridiculous jer- sound off.
1: like I think it might be the only movie that I wrote a ridiculously long review about because I had such an intense response to it uh-huh. um, because I feel like it's also just this restlessness towards desire in general and like you think that this one person is going to be the answer and it's not and you think that like marriage is going to be the answer but it's not and you think that a movie is going to make sense but then suddenly it turns into a
2: montage of crazy sex that you thought was like a dream sequence because it was so stupid
1: the the sex montage is a direct mirroring of the video killed the radio star sequence no it isn't it's nothing like it yeah, it's exactly the no, like no, it. no, no. Only, ch- only the camera is not like
2: no. You it's know. visually, it's nothing like it. Thematically, it's nothing like it. Like yeah, to
1: me, exactly it was. No, 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 no. Video, the video. Look, I, I like the they're, video. Killed the radio. They're crashing theme. into each other. Just like when okay, they're in the, they're that is they're like scrambler. the most broad
2: and stupid way to interpret sex is people crashing into each other. Well, I mean, oh, yeah, sometimes they're... you crash into like another girl, and <laughs> sometimes you crash into each other, doggy style. Like, no, come on, no, no, it's nothing like the video kill. Video killed the radio star sequence is idea of the tension. It's sexual tension. It's their hands yeah. almost touching. It's it's being propelled through centripetal force. And then they're actually doing. literally. Yeah, that makes it completely different. There's a difference between tension and and completion. Mm-hmm. When they are having crazy sex and then they're experimenting with crazy sex, that's not. There's no tension there. They're not. Ooh, should we? No, like that. Mm-hmm. That is a celebration of the sex. There's. It does not mirror that scene at all. I don't mean to yell at you, but <laughs> but you're so wrong. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't hate take this waltz. I just um, I really was put off by the constant reminders. Uh, through like symbolism and visual metaphors and lines people speak of, this is what the movie is about. Instead of just being about what it's about. I mean, again, if you want to talk about a movie that sort of mirrors it, like The Deep Blue Sea is a movie in which, yeah. like, I agree, these are characters who are just fully three dimensional people, and it's just them dealing with it, and it doesn't have to stop every fifteen minutes to tell you. Like, I just to, think it's a...
1: funny that when like when people say that that this is what the movie is about, I don't feel that way towards the movie. Like, I don't. I'm getting something different yeah, when I watch the
2: movie. I th- I you but I don't think you're right. I don't think that's what... I don't think you're
1: supporting I'm it I'm so through. glad that I'm not, though, because I love it more. Yeah, good
2: f- great for you. But I'm just saying, I don't think you're supporting it through... Like, what? Like a majority of the movie is just about her being restless in her marriage, which is very comfortable but yeah. very boring, and then her finding this new guy. And by the way, one of the things I don't like about Take This Waltz is the new guy has no personality whatsoever. Well, he
1: doesn't have to be. What, you, you just, what do you, you mean? Doesn't you, have to
2: be. You, you don't be you have, Don't you, as a viewer, want to somehow realize why he's going for her? Don't you? Shouldn't he represent some kind of excitement as opposed to just being a boring lump?
1: Or he could just be the hot guy that she wants to fuck.
2: Right, but yeah, that's that's not. It couldn't have been better. Couldn't that? Couldn't. Couldn't her plight have been better illustrated by him being more than just a hot
1: guy she wants to fuck?
2: Maybe. Could not he have just been? The antithesis of Seth Rogen,
1: instead of having no personality, it's her, it's, her, it's her just being impulsive, and that's. Yeah, but, and that's but it's not. I just, can't, and I can't really like go more into it without like getting really personal and expounding on a conversation I had with my ex about all this. But it's yeah. really like, no, I'm not
2: doubting this happens, and I'm not doubting that this sort of thing didn't even happen to you. I'm just saying that as a film, it could have illustrated it much better. It's not her being impulsive because it's her being very trepidatious. So it's her. Going there and then pulling back and going there and pulling back. It's not her just doing it. It's well, not I think just it's, it, like she's just and pursuing to, it
1: out of impulse, though. I think she's, like, pursuing it, though. You know, I mean, especially, like, just, like, going with him for coffee and going through with that conversation. Which, if,
2: she, like, if she wasn't, like, a highly attractive woman, it would make sense that, oh, the first guy who shows me interest, ooh, that's an area I never thought of before. But when it's fucking Michelle Williams, like, you have to think of why this guy... Is the one who makes her question her marriage, as opposed to she's a she's a woman in America, or I guess that movie takes place in Canada. Yeah, but she's a woman in North America. Like she gets hit on constantly. Like that's that's what being a woman, a beautiful woman, is. Like
1: that's possible.
2: You want to know why? You want to know what about him? And I don't think giving him more personality would have hurt the film. I think it would have helped the film a lot. I understand I it's really personal to f- you, and focus
1: I'm, on that part. But yeah. yeah,
2: I'm just saying that's that's really. What really fun me out About that film
1: Like nothing felt It's funny like When people bring That stuff up But like As I'm watching it It was only until After I heard like Your, your review on Film Jive like, uh-huh. a, a, like when people's Criticisms came out I'm like Wow I didn't yeah, yeah. Think, think of that I, at all I, let, Let's go ahead Which and is skip, great Let's skip all that let's I skip, agree though let's It's g- funny that I agree With people What people are but saying But it doesn't bother you In the no, least doesn't. I mean we'll,
2: we'll be talking About that with my Number three film um, but uh, let's get ahead uh, to take the parts that this thiswaltz that I think are really great. Um, I really love how how it depicts a couple that is just so comfortable with each other that they yeah. just talk and baby talk and are just playing dumb pranks on each other as far as, like, the cold water. Like, it really like when gets... Yeah, when he's it's on the really phone well observed. she's playing
1: with his face. Yeah, and...
2: and she's, like, trying to, like, distract him and yeah. make him laugh when he's on the phone. Like, that
1: is some real shit. And that it's really well observed. Yeah. That...
2: that but she that's... does that
1: so well with an elderly couple and away from her then just, yeah. like, she's great at capturing that stuff.
2: Yeah, if it was more of that, that would have been, like, if the, that was the focus of the film. Because that is, that is by far the... Other than the one sequ- the video killed the radio star which is just a perfect scene mm-hmm. um, like that those to me are the strongest moments of the film the between Seth Rogen who like he's fine as he is he has to be kind of boring like in order for the film to work he can't be too exciting or funny or anything so he works but it's not exactly a role I praise but those scenes between her and him are like my favorite scenes of the film
1: yeah i think it just it just questions that gray area of why we get bored I don't know I just I, I, I just feel like I, I feel get like there, that is very common in film though I don't think that, You're right. that is, no, that is you are right it's a common to theme look, take this waltz It's a common theme that somehow just like fucking got to me
2: Well so, I mean just from a just from a series of details that coincided yeah. with your life that it that felt, other films don't
1: it felt like the future part two for me yeah now the future is a completely different movie right right in the way it's portrayed but but as like, far as
2: its relation to your life yes
1: yeah I, I respect that I got
2: that. Thank just, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, my number three is Cloud Atlas. I'm, I don't know. Where. My my number three is uh, is actually the music video for uh, Ozzy Osbourne's Bark at the Moon. Thank you, Jim. Mm-hmm. No, my number three is Cloud Atlas. And I don't know the first. I like. I really want to watch this again. And honestly, this is the f- first film I would suspect that upon subsequent rewatches would go down on my list. But this is actually kind of a personal movie because... Sort of something I started thinking about more this year that I hadn't thought about before is sort of my own trying to figure out my own personal philosophy and sort of what it means to be a good person and what's important to me as far as being a good person. And these are things that I was really concerned with. And basically what I came to was humanism. And this is a humanist film through and through. This is is the backbone of humanism. Um, And – but beyond the fact that I just very much relate to any plea for empathy in film, um, which shouldn't be denied because it is honestly a very uh underlooked thing and it's it's easy to be cynical about, but it's and because it's easy to be snarky on the internet and to say mean things about people you don't know and all that, but it's but trying to sort of understand how you know, humans are mm-hmm. and trying to understand their plight, even though you don't haven't been through it, is you know become very important to me. Um, and this is a film that is all about that. So it sort of hit at the right time and just moved me to tears often. Um, like the whole last thirty minutes, I was yeah. just bawling. Um, but beyond that, just as far as filmmaking goes. Um, like it's
1: an independent film,
2: yeah, it's, it's because crazy. well, no, no, yeah, it's an independent film. Number one, it's super fucking risky, and it's a risk that didn't pay off um, as far as financially goes. I think it certainly paid off artistically. Yes, but um, uh, the the Cloud Atlas is the Wachowskis pushing the envelope as far as filmmaking goes, and people don't like to admit that because it's a cheesy movie, and they like to go, oh, it's just like a cheesy movie, like any yeah, other cheesy movie, like mm-hmm. where the where it has a very saccharine and very simple motto at the end of it but like there are not films like this where I think the closest thing is the Inception is the way Inception edits between several action scenes going on at once whether it's the van chase or it's the cha- or it's the sort of the zero gravity fight in the hotel or the snow bouncing. But the thing is,
1: Inception Chris, meets The Fountain,
2: right? But the thing about that Inception is Christopher Nolan's not very good at shooting action, and the mm-hmm. Wachowskis are amazing at shooting action. And Tom Twyker, who also directed, I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't discount his um, contributions. They're really good at shooting action, and the idea of like three simultaneous action scenes happening, whether it's um, and I wish I, it's a film I want to watch again so I could be more specific, but the. Uh, the, uh, the, one, the man on the mass like tying up the mass while the guns pointed at him and there's another action scene I think going on in the weird uh, future where Tom Hanks talks like Jar Jar Binks and there's like another action scene going on in the sort of the uh, paranoia thriller the 70s style paranoia thriller involving uh, nuclear scientists and stuff um, that's the other thing this is not in not the same way and I don't think even as skilled as Holy Motors but this is a love letter to film um, all the oh, stories yeah. are very different genres there's like a really wacky comedy um, as far as the elderly people planning their daring escape from the Which old I folks home yeah it was fun there was the again the paranoia 70s paranoia thriller there was the sort of Amistad uh, kind of film there was the weird sci-fi uh, Japanese mm. uh, film there was the sort of uh, post-apocalyptic uh, film like, like this is a film that juggles a lot um And for every like for every two choices that they they get wrong like and that that just feel like bad choices and just feel like are very distracting and stupid and silly like there are like five that are really great. Um, And it's not a perfect movie by any means, uh, but it's a movie I really 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 love. Uh, I mean, we already talked about the Cloud Atlas a little, but
1: agree so much. Yeah, the music's great and I wonder if seeing it a second time it'll even be higher because I think about it more and more and I love it
2: yeah I I imagine a lot of the connections once you know where all the stories are going Mm -hmm. you'd be able to draw stronger connections the Wachowskis are just really good filmmakers but they for some reason they happen to be really great filmmakers in a way that like not a lot of people I mean Devin from Badass Digest the people at Chud Ren Brown from Chud um, like there are certain people who are really get it and really get like why something like Speed Racer can be so moving even though it's just like sugar coated candy as far as the visuals go and and so and so hyperactive, but like the Wachowskis are really great filmmakers. I mean, I really think they are, and they they're really consistently excellent. Um, and other than like Matrix Revolutions, I wouldn't say they've made a bad film. And um, and Matrix Revolutions is just sort of a bad part since I think. I think Reloaded and Revolutions feel like part of the same movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more like the bad part of a good movie. But uh, so, and Tom Twyker, I don't even like Run Lola Run. I really don't like that movie a lot. Um, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it really gets to anything deep. And I think that the actual style of it is kind of annoying. I mean, it's been a while since. Especially I've Especially
1: now, it. I think I don't know if it's that spectacular to watch these. To, days. to the point
2: where there are parts of Hannah where I was afraid that it would end up like Run Lola Run. Yeah. Um, and that's why I hated the score in Hannah by the way the score in Cloud Atlas is amazing and and I love the story the two composers Mm -hmm. Um, that's beautiful and it does feel like a very transgendered kind of movie as much as you know uh, Lana Wachowski doesn't like to be in the spotlight and doesn't like to sort of put herself out there uh, and sort of she does like they've done press for this movie because they had to because it's an indie release and they put a lot of their own money into it they put millions of their own money into it, so like they can't just allow Warner Brothers to pay. You know, uh...
1: it's a hard movie to discuss in de- great detail with, without like getting, I guess, not necessarily spoilerish. Spoilerish with like asking specific questions mm-hmm. about it, but I felt like I got the movie. You know, like I mean, it's it's well, a vi- I don't think
2: it's a complicated. No, movie. that's what
1: I mean. Like I felt like it really is a simple movie to getting, get.
2: Getting the movie isn't the problem. The problem is is being able to appreciate the movie even though it's cheesy and not cool. It's not cool at all. There's nothing yeah. cool about Clad Outless. I know. Like, even the sci-fi parts and all the special effects and everything, there's nothing cool about those. I had
1: to look past, like, well, Halle is not the strongest actress in the world. Yeah, yeah, but no. what the fuck, you know? I mean, look at the overall yeah. theme on the like, like
2: I, like I talked about I think after... I forget what episode it was, but when I first saw it, I think it was maybe the... I think maybe it was the uh, Wong Car Wai episode with uh, Damon Houts. Uh, like, on the micro, it, there's yeah. tons of failures, but on the macro, it's a fucking triumph. V- mm-hmm. Viewed as what you know, viewed as one movie, it's amazing. Viewed as several different stories, they're all they're all kind of failures, and they're all not done amount to much.
1: Before we get to our final two movies of our yeah. list, let's listen to one more voicemail. All
0: right. Hey Jim and Patrick, this is Zach from the Film Jive Podcast. First, I'd like to wish you both a very happy New Year, and uh, also congratulate you on reaching fifty episodes. As I've said before, the Directors Club podcast is easily my favorite movie podcast available, and I hope to hear many more shows from the both of you into the future. So, in regards to my favorite films of 2012, firstly I say I think this year has been a really fantastic and particularly divisive year in film, with a lot of ambitious projects from a lot of fantastic filmmakers. Some succeeded, some failed. But I do think that there were a few films for me that stood head and shoulders above the rest. Cloud Atlas from the Wachowskis and Tom Tickfer, which probably is the most ambitious of films this year, and it proved to be the most emotional experience I had with a movie all year. Uh, I left this theater, left the theater just in blubbering mess long after the movie had already ended. Holy Motors, the Laos Carax film, which I had a very different experience with, but is a brilliantly surreal mashup of genres that I just enjoyed from beginning to end. Bart Layton's The Imposter, which is a mesmerizing documentary and is simply perfect in every facet of the medium and has just an incredible story that's much stranger than any sort of fiction that could have been created. Don Hertzfeld's It's a Beautiful Day, which is an animated film and is probably the most profound piece of art I've seen in a very long time that just exudes this euphoric inspiration and love that is unprecedented and one of the most just jaw-droppingly beautiful things I've seen ever. And then finally, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, which is filmmaking's craft just at its very finest. It's classically shot. It's gorgeous. There's three remarkable performances in a narrative that really festers itself in ambiguity, which makes it all the more special for me and the finest filmmaking achievement of 2012. As I said, love the show, keep up the great work and thanks for taking time to talk with us on Film Jive this year. Hopefully we get to do that again. Uh, So see you guys in 2013. Have a great episode. Thanks Zach. That was, oh man, that was a great list there, buddy. Mm
1: -hmm. And we are so appreciative of your support and for having us on your awesome podcast this year. Absolutely! One of the highlights of 2012 for yeah. us, was being on your show many times.
2: Yeah, I will say one <laughs> No, I was going to say the best thing about Film Jive is that they have us on it but no, that's actually a good oh, podcast. Oh man! That's a really good podcast. Yeah, uh, I agree. I enjoy
1: listening to that. Definitely, same here. Mm-hmm. Happy subscriber.
2: Uh, yeah, before we get to our last two films um, uh, top two films of uh, 2012, I thought maybe we could go ahead and read all the lists that got emailed to us. Oh, that'd be great! Yeah, yeah, we we got a whole lot. You guys really turned out. Um, this is really great. Uh, we're gonna. A lot of you sent some, you know, really thoughtful critique of each film. Um, we don't have time for all that. I will get to the gist of it. Um, Mindy Whittaker um, sent in this list uh, for films in uh, no particular order. Uh, I'm assuming Mindy is a woman. Uh, Killer Joe,
1: Oslo, August 31st. Have you oh, heard of that? Great film? film. Yeah. What's that? It's very good. What is it? I think it's Norwegian. Okay, it's a movie about addiction that takes place in one day about a guy just getting out of rehab. Oh, it's very good. Okay, it's on Netflix. Check it out.
2: Skyfall, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, The Master, Compliance, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Yay, Silver Linings Playbook, Yay, Django Unchained, Yay, and the Five Year Engagement, to which she says, "I might be the only one that's the funniest movie of the year, but it might be the Jason Siegel and Emily Blunt crush I have on both of them." I thought that
1: movie was pretty funny did you? yeah you were one of the only ones everyone hated that movie oh wow I'm sorry
2: Uh, she said the worst films of the year were Born Legacy Prometheus Cosmopolis this is 40 this is not a film she says no really I thought that was shit and she also (laughs) thought (laughs) because a lot of people love this is not a film yeah Um, and she also thought Moonrise Kingdom was overrated which means she was wrong sorry Mindy Uh, Bill Ackerman sent in this list Uh, his uh, number 10 was Dark Horse by Todd Salons Um, did you see that? yeah you did? not a fan no okay uh, number nine was Color Me Obsessed, a film about The Replacements, by uh, Gorman Bichard. He uh, he said that he's a huge super fan of The Replacements, so it's oh. no surprise that's on the list. I want to see that. Uh, Goodbye, First Love was number eight. Number seven was The Kid with a Bike. Uh, both of those films I've not heard of. Number six, movie? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, or the Bicycle Thieves. Uh, number six was Django Unchained. Uh, number five was a Hal Hartley movie called Meanwhile. So what? I can. I only assume that Bill Ackerman's crazy because what? what, what, what? I played at festivals. It's probably horrible. What's up? Uh, number four was Oslo, August 31st. Number three was Moonrise Kingdom. Number two was The Deep Blue Sea. And number one was The Master. Oh. Jonathan Anderson, a good friend from uh, Chud a while back. His number ten was Blue Like Jazz. Uh, number nine was Django Unchained. His number eight was Cabin in the Woods. Number seven was Skyfall. Number six was Looper. Number five was The Avengers. So far, very solid list. Number four was Moonrise Kingdom number three was Lincoln, number two is Beasts of the Southern Wild, and number one, a movie he only watched because he heard me review it on this very podcast, The Deep Blue Sea. Uh, thanks for that Aww. list, Jonathan.
3: Uh, we so have
2: cool. uh, Sean Pontow, who, <laughs> who wrote very vivid and uh, interesting uh, write-ups of five different movies. Didn't necessarily indicate they were his favorite of the year, so I'm just going to go ahead and... Summarize what he said about them. He said the sessions was underrated with great performances, mm-hmm. and he of course mentioned Hill and Hunts Bush. Uh, he said Argo was a great movie. It would have been even greater if they hadn't gilded the lily at the end with the uh, <laughs> with the uh, sort of airport security chasing them on the runway. Mm. I like that. I think that was one of the more yeah. tense moments. Um, I, but again, my suspension of belief belief wasn't necessarily broken because I thought the whole thing was mostly just a thriller and not like a real sure. th- events um, number three uh, another movie listed was Looper which he said he had a great momentum um, and was a great movie um, number four was The uh, Master <laughs> he said it was a very lousy ending and had moments that was that read like when method acting goes wrong but it was also compelling interesting uh, and uh, he called out Killer Joe he said Gina Gershon and Juno Temple were probably wearing Merkins in their full frontal (laughs) nudity scenes and therefore they are cowards so uh, (laughs) strong words from Sean Pontell. thank you very much and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your last name now uh, dear friend of the podcast uh, Robert Reinecke sent in this list number 10 was Monsieur Lazar which I think actually came out in 2011 in a lot of places but apparently where he lives it was 2012 so works um, number nine was Bernie, um, which he praised for Jack Black's performance and for the tone that Linklater strikes right throughout. Uh, Skyfall was number eight, which he felt was sort of the best uh, kind of populous entertainment uh, of the year. Number seven was Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah. Um, that he said it was genuinely romantic and genuinely funny, and the a- a- acting is terrific, so... Uh, There you go. Number six was Beasts of the Southern Wild, uh, which was unlike any film he'd ever seen. Number five was Argo, um, which uh, he praised for just being so tense that you forget that you already know how it's going to end. Number four was Moonrise Kingdom, which had Wes Anderson playing at all of his strengths. uh, Beautiful, heartfelt, and with great dialogue coming out of the children's mouths. Number three, Holy Motors, which mesmerized him at every frame of the film. Uh, number two was The Imposter, which was a film that was so unbelievable and crazy that if it was fiction, he would not believe it. Um, and number one, a film that both of us, I believe, had on our 2011 list, but only was released in his neck of the woods, 2012, so we included it. A Separation.
1: Another movie I'd love to rewatch.
2: By the way, people, if you haven't seen A Separation yet, if it just sort of went by the wayside, go see A Separation. It's amazing. It's on DVD. See that shit. It's. Incredible. The separation's oh, God, great. Yes. Yeah. It's just a, ma- he said, it's a masterclass in adult contemporary drama, and the moral dilemmas are as tricky as anything aside as Kislowski, with no dramatic speech coming to the rescue, no big Oscar moments, and the acting is great, and the cin- cinematography creates a really intimate world. Could not agree more. Separation's fantastic, even if
3: <laughs> neither of us Ooh. included
2: it as a 2012 movie. Uh, Jay Cheel. From uh, Film Junk? Never heard. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh Documentary filmmaker, and it was all right. He, he sent us a list. Uh, number 10 was Taboo. Number 9 was End of Watch, which is interesting. I hadn't heard much about that. I saw it.
1: I liked it. Yeah? Didn't love it. liked it. Number
2: 8 was The Grey. Number 7 was Prometheus, also surprising, but uh, I'm sure he has his reasons. Number 6 was Beasts of the Southern Wild. Number 5 was Silver Linings Playbook number 4 Moonrise Kingdom number 3 Spring Breakers Harmony Corin's film
1: We're going to uh, have Jay on for a Harmony Corin episode in the future
2: Yeah absolutely featuring uh this film features James Franco in a role that was structured after the uh infamous sort of uh rapper Riffraff who if you haven't heard his <laughs> What? There's a rapper named Riffraff he's a white guy he's like 40 and he acts like like it's he's I don't know he sometimes he feels like he's he's functionally retarded like he's a very strange guy anyway that was James Franco's performance was evidently uh, uh, structured after him number 2 Django and Change and number 1 The Master Brian Tallarico sent this list number 10 The Looper number 9 Robert Zemeckis' Flight number 8 The Impossible number 7 Skyfall number 6 Les Miserables Number five, The Invisible War, the documentary about the sort of systemic rape inside of the military. Oh. Yes. It's not a response you can have to that. Not exactly the the most fun movie of the year, but very powerful journalism. Number four, Zero Dark Thirty. Number three, Lincoln. Number two, Argo. And number one, The Master. So again, we're getting a lot of people who love The Master more than we did. That's fine. Jordan Mason apparently went to TIFF. Most of his films were there, and I don't think have seen any kind of release in America, or at least not the kind that I have heard of them. So uh, we'll go ahead and list them anyway. Number 10 was Two Years at Sea by Ben Rivers. Number 9 was Lawrence Anyways by Xavier Dolan. Number 8 was Alps by Giorgio Lanthimos.
1: Oh, I want to see that. Dogtooth guy.
2: Yes. Number 7 was I Want Your Love by Travis Matthews. Number 6 was Mekong Hotel by, I'm going to mispronounce this, Apachapong Weir Hesikulch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I apologize I like that uh, Number five was The Last Time I Saw Makeko By uh, Juego Pedro Rodriguez And Juego Riguera Demada My friends pronounce That as well Number four was Boy Eating the Birds Food By Hectores Liguizos My members pronounce That Number three was Spring Breakers By Harmony Corinne. Pretty oh. sure I m- Pronounced that right Number two was "We Need to Talk About Kevin" by Lim Ramsey. Again, a, th- a film I think most people consider yeah, 2011, but definitely. maybe it only came out where he lived 2012. Number one, "Holy Motors" by Leos Carax. We had a uh, listener, um, phone. We had a listener send us an email. He's a uh, longtime listener, but first-time uh, caller, I guess, or emailer, whatever. We're glad to have his opinions. His number ten was "Dark Knight Rises." Number ten, his number nine was "21 Jump Street." His number eight was Looper. His number seven was The Gray. Number six, Lincoln. Number five, The Cabin in the Woods. Number four, Moonrise Kingdom. Number three, Skyfall. Number two, Django Unchained. And number one, Cloud Atlas. So he agrees Who is this? with us. This is Tad Bear 2004. Aw,
1: thanks, Tad Bear. Yeah,
2: he might be an eight year old. Maybe he was born in 2004. I wonder if he's related to Red Bear. Yeah, he's probably related to Red Bear, and he's probably related to the uh, Bear in the Edge. Mm. Um, now, of course, there's Kurt Halfyard, a uh, stalwart guest, uh, many-time guest on this uh,
1: podcast. One of my favorites.
2: Number 10 was Barbarian Sound Studio from the United Kingdom. That's he, he listed up them. on a couple of lists lately, and I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it either. Um, he listed the countries, by the way, so I'll go ahead and list those as well. Number 9 was Leviathan from the USA. I, I've heard of that no, I don't really know anything about it. Number 8 was Compliance yes. from the USA. Number 7 was... I like how you're rooting for... I like guess it's, like it's like a sporting event. Number seven, The Imposter from the United Kingdom. Mm. Number six was Wrong from France. Number five was Moonrise Kingdom from USA. Number four was The Paperboy from USA, which I think he's maybe the only one who liked that movie that I saw. Uh-huh. I think most people, even the ones who liked it, just thought it was kind of trashy fun and sort of like Killer Joe as opposed to being actually actually good movie, but... Number three was Gangs of Wasipur by, uh, from India. Number two was Amour from France. And number one was The Master from the United States of A. Amour was in my top 25. Absolutely. Now, Matt Gamble, controversial finger. You remember him from the De Palma episode. His number 10 was Killing Them Softly. His number nine was Ugh. John Carter. His little message to people uh, who did not like John Carter is, uh, Fuck the haters. Fuck them. So, there you go. So number eight was The Innkeepers, which is a really bad movie. Number seven... <laughs> uh, it's not that bad. It's okay. <laughs> number seven is Seven Psychopaths, fitting. Number six is Silent House, which isn't as bad as Jim thinks it is. That's shit. Number five was Silver Linings Playbook. Number four was Your Sister's Sister. Uh, number three was Indie Game, the movie. Number two was Claire Joe. And number one, Compliance. Patrick really? thinks Killer Joe is shit. I do. Uh, well, I, th- I think it's just gross and nasty. And if you think that gross and nasty are inherently valuable traits, then sure, you can like the movie. But I don't see any any ringing qualities beyond that. Uh, there's uh, Peter Sobchinsky. Uh His number 10 was Beasts of the Southern Wild. Number 9 was Cosmopolis. Uh Peter Sovchinsky, by the way, also on the De Palma episode. Oh, wow. Back to back. Way yeah, to go, on Patrick. On the pro side. Um his number eight was Rust and Bone, his number seven was Bernie, his number six was Argo, number five, Moonrise Kingdom, number four, Zero Dark Thirty, number three, Holy Motors, number two, Django Unchained, and number one, the Master. Again, a lot of people really loving Master. Damon Houch from our One Car Y episode. Uh, he had he only had a top five with a uh, sort of floater top six. He said my number six would probably be killing them softly, but my number five is Zero Dark 30. Number four, Cloud Atlas. Number three, Moonrise Kingdom. Number two, Django Unchained. And number one, Holy Motors. Of course, we have Ren Brown from Chud.com. You know him from the Wachowski episode. His number ten was Argo. His number nine was Moonrise Kingdom. His number eight was Skyfall. His number seven was The Grey. His number six was Looper. His number five was Lincoln. His number four was Cloud Atlas. His number three was Beasts of the Southern Wild. His number two, Zero Dark Thirty. His number one was Django Unchained, which I can get behind. And we had a listener uh, write-in, Blaine Gamble. He only, these are not ranked except for he knew that his favorite film of the year was The Master. Uh, He put in parentheses, Phoenix! (coughs) So he loved the the performance as much as we did. His other films in no particular order were Dark Knight Rises, Lincoln, Looper, Rust and Bone, Beasts of the Southern One, Holy Moonrise Kingdom, Killing Them Softly, and Cloud Atlas. Whew!
1: So, my number two I'm not gonna say too much about because I know for a fact we're gonna be hearing about it a lot more very soon. Yeah,
2: that would be better off dead starring Joan Cusack.
1: Cusack. (laughs) 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 Oh no. It's not You have a Joan!
2: You have a Joan? (laughs) <laughs> no, it's
1: actually Oh
2: Django Unchained?
1: It's actually called The Django Unchained. The D is Silent.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> the D is Silent. Yeah. Uh subtitle Hell Wolf You Will Be Devoured.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, Quentin yeah. Tarantino, you did it again.
2: Yeah. And by Did uh, It Again. I, you don't just mean made another Twin Tarantino movie, you mean... Made a fucking great film. Like, surprised
1: everybody. Uh, surprised me. took everyone me. by surprise. Again, this is an interesting, like, uh... The, f- like, sort of play on how we were talking about expectations, because a lot of people were saying, meh. Not, not so much. Not so high up on this one. A lot of people were kind of down on it. Um... At least like some initial screenings Not a lot of people were really like uh, Going crazy over it And at least a a lot of the critics I talked to Including a few colleagues Were kind of like saying Eh, it's over long Eh, Jamie Foxx isn't that good There's, you know It's nothing like In terms A lot of people have been saying That he's overdosing on the revenge theme After Kill Bill and Glorious Bastards And now this film I don't agree at all I think that uh, he is bringing a whole lot to this film in terms of subtext. In terms of, uh, I mean, I will say that the eruption of violence (laughs) is—it's one of those moments of, of all movies this year that completely like felt cathartic, but also. Shocking and wonderful at the same time to see those squibs be the way they are in this film. And They're Verhovens, yeah. The Verhoeven approach I think to violence—the official
2: brand name of those kinds of squibs. That are yeah, that
1: large. yeah. No, totally. It's it's a, a, it's a, it's an exploitation flick in, a, in of its own right. Um, but at the same time, I I really think he's onto something in terms of not just delivering. Oh, here's my take on the spaghetti western he's uh he's really adding something more to this to this to his his brand of filmmaking and I feel like it's funny especially because for our clip show when we talk about inglorious bastards and how we were kind of you know in not necessarily in the middle but not as high up when we first saw it um that's a movie that has grown on me more and more over the years and I have a feeling that upon rewatches with this one i'm gonna to grow to appreciate it even more I will say that. What took me out of the movie was just seeing Quentin Tarantino acting ridiculous, but that's okay. That's the low point of the film. It, it is. It's, it's the only thing that really kind of like made me go, oh, Quentin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everything else about it, I absolutely loved, and I think Jamie Foxx is pretty good. I really do. Um, and like I said earlier, uh, Samuel Jackson is fucking phenomenal. Leonardo DiCaprio, an incredibly great villain, and Christoph Waltz, once again... Awesome. I mean, it's just one of those things where uh, we're going to hear more about Patrick's take on the film, I'm sure. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I just, one of my most joyous for, times at the If it weren't for business. Simon
2: Russell Beale, Christoph Waltz would have been my best supporting actor. Yeah,
1: I, I, I would agree. It really was kind of a tough call between him and, uh, and and Samuel Jackson. I thought they were both fucking wonderful in this movie. It's just one of the best times I've had at the cinema all year long. So great! I got to watch this with Patrick. Absolutely. What's your number two? I think I know what it is. My
2: number two (laughs) is twenty twelve is the Imposter. Oh, amazing documentary. Is it? Uh, Just on a surface level, just totally riveting and mind blowing, and like every twist of the story just makes you want to like just makes you feel like you're losing your mind because it's so crazy. Um, And of course, that's just a story well told. And I think that may be the point. Maybe some people are missing. It's a story told. Um, All of the things that make this film as great as it is are choices by the director to um, sort of forget about the idea of oh, we're going to tell it exactly as it happened. We're going to we're going to be exactly accurate. We're not going to you know we're going to be as objective as possible. No, fuck that. He wants to tell the story. Great. So he has these amazing reenactments in which things spoken in interviews are are uh, are lip synced yeah, like in the reenactments. Um, it's an amazing editing style it cuts to you know it, it he he turns idle kind of faces that uh, it's a film by the way about a man who claimed to be a missing child t- so, um, so he could be um, taken in by a a man in France or Spain he was he was french but he was in spain
3: uh-huh. a man
2: in spain who claimed to be a missing child, um, from, uh, from, uh, Texas. So he would be taken home by the family and the family actually taking him in, even though he looked nothing like them, uh, like, like the missing son. And it's, it's just this crazy story and every detail makes it crazier and crazier. And it's, it just blows your mind and it's told so well and it's edited so well. And, um, but what makes it really – sort of pushes it over the edges is, is, this, is this sort of uh, balance uh, where on the one side you have this family who – they're taking in this person who's clearly not their son and you want to know why. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Why, why are they doing that? Totally. Um, on the other hand, you have law enforcement which it, who, who begin to be suspicious of this, of this man who claims to be the long-lost son of this family and then they have asked ask the same question, and the conclusion they come to is ridiculous. Um, and it's this idea that... Uh, it's this idea of... Uh, and this is... I, I mean, I have to admit, this, isn't, this is something I, that once I heard someone say it, then it sort of made me think about the movie in a different light. So I give credit where credit's due. There's something uh, where I first heard from uh, Michael D'Angelo about how it's a film about confirmation bias and it's about how this family wants to believe it's their son because the real truth is if if a child goes missing and he's 10 years old it's likely that he was kidnapped and killed and that's why he's missing it's not often that a missing child goes that long missing um, without any reason and without any point Mm -hmm. but they don't want to believe that that's fucking heartbreaking of course so they want to believe that this person who looks and sounds nothing like their son is their son it's confirmation bias. It's the it's the story they want to believe. At the same side, because the uh, because the government I forget exactly what agencies get involved, um, um, because the government doesn't understand why doesn't understand this confirmation bias. They don't understand why this family um, is you know why this family is doing it. They come up with their own theory, which is just as crazy, um, and it's sort of. It, it turns the film, instead of just a really amazing story told well, which without all this, it would still be an amazing story told well and be one of the best documentaries of the year. Um, it turns it into this really interesting essay on confirmation bias, which again um, sort of plays into the fact that it's a very much an Errol Morris kind of film because it's playing into the idea of objective truth, and sort of mocking the idea of objective truth, and the idea that everyone's bringing their own sort of bias, and their own sort of subjectivity to everything. Um, And so it becomes this amazing kind of story that has these implications that are just fascinating, and yeah, just... I'm... It it wouldn't... uh, That on its own wouldn't do it, but it's also just, just so incredible to watch, and one of the choices the director makes is sort of it tells the story without any retrospect. Like, it just tells the story as the events happen. It doesn't have people, it doesn't start with people looking back and then tell the story and jump back and forth time. It's all present tense, sort of. So, you're riveted because you want to know what happens next just as much as, you know, they want to know what's going on in... Uh, it's just yeah, it's an amazing film, and it's very cinematic in a way that a lot of documentaries aren't. I mean, I don't. I feel like people. This 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 might sound similar to my jag on uh, animated films, but like I feel like people give a documentaries a lot of fucking leeway just because it's like even if they're not particularly well made films, just because the subject matter interests people, which is you know fine. But like a film isn't good just because it happens to be. About something that's important, like I actually had a problem with uh, the uh, Secret War,
1: Invisible War,
2: Invisible War. I'm sorry, yes, Invisible War. (coughs) Well, it doesn't
1: do anything cinematically. It's no, it's not. It's it's a lot of talking heads, and
2: it's journalism is what it is, and it's apparently it's changing things, and that's good, and I'm glad it was made, and I'm glad that it got the attention it did. But as a film, like I'm not interested in journalism. We don't, you know, this is not a journalism podcast. It's not journal like great moments in journalism isn't. Necessarily, what I'm intrigued by. I'm intrigued by great filmmaking. And so many fil- documentaries are just talking heads. It's just people looking at the camera talking, cut to archival footage, cut to still photo, cut to. Like, it doesn't fully realize the potential of cinema, and they get away with it by saying, oh, it's nonfiction, so we're limited. No, you're not limited! And the imposter proves just how not limited cinema is. And, you know, it's the same way Errol Morris' documentaries prove just how not limited documentaries are. And that's sort of just brilliant and cinematic story uh, told in this way just makes The imposter just so amazing. And I know, Jim, you didn't get a lot out of it, but do you have any specific, like, complaints about it, or is it just not something that you felt a lot about? Um... Because (laughs) this is one of the things we disagree on, but I don't know if you necessarily have, like, the way that I have specific complaints about Take This Waltz. I don't think
1: if you... I don't know if you have that. I never really, like... um, It's funny because... Again, it's one of those movies. The more and more it pops up, and unless the more and more people talk about it, the more I felt like, why didn't I get as much out of it? Mm-hmm. I, I I felt like I was. I found it really compelling. I found it fascinating. I found it <laughs> really like, um, again, a very cinematic approach to documentary filmmaking that I think needs to be embraced more and should be uh, um, kind of. Um, utilized for future uh, documentaries, because I think especially the 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 way sound is utilized and i I was really I, again like i mean we 've gone on record in the past, especially when we talked about Errol Morris and how you know a lot of documentary filmmakers really don 't bring a lot to the table and decide i 'm just going to point the camera mm-hmm. at the subject and shoot and you know let the let him tell the story and that's that 's that. Did you Here, see a, he does a lot more did you see a documentary this year that you liked more um I don't know it's i think I think I've seen at least uh three or four documentaries i I'd have to look at my list specifically to make sure but i it's funny because like when I did the uh, bonus episode on on compliance I, I i more or less brought up about um, on with the imposter in particular how I wasn't sure if the filmmaker and yet when I hear people describe the like you know how you're describing it in terms of what the film is trying to convey about you know the um you know how there's just this, there's no uh emphasis on objectivity there's just this the way we fabricate nature in in uh, with when it comes to like we want to believe something Even if it's not true I really respond to that idea And I've always been fascinated by stories about liars Mm -hmm. Always I really find that to be fascinating And I like that this questions the role of truth Of closure in our daily lives And how we have an obsession with Trying to uncover that And we want it to the point where we're Willing to basically lie to ourselves And I think that Those those ideas come across Very vividly here But I, I think just there were just a couple of things including just uh, some cutaways or maybe just like moments of him smirking that rubbed me the wrong way. Well, how do they know. rub you the wrong way? I think I just didn't like I just didn't like the filmmaker's choice to cut back to them even if they were appropriate. Right,
2: but I'm like why?
1: I I just thought that I don't know, I just thought they were cheap. I don't know why I just thought that like why at this specific moment where we're interviewing an FBI agent where she's talking about the case specifically and how it's affecting the family. Why are we cutting away to Frederick right now? Because it's it's not only just a the story, it's also sort of a I know, portrait I, of a sociopath I, I know, I know, and I know, it's I about know. I know. All that you're saying is apt, it's true, it just didn't I didn't like it. <laughs> like everything we talked about when you were at my apartment, it made complete sense, but it's just not it didn't it didn't work for me in that way where I found it to be like a pleasurable experience, and not saying every movie has to be a pleasurable experience, especially a documentary about this subject matter that's about manipulation to the point, you know, where it's 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 actually a devastating film in the end. And it's and I mean, it's it has its rather I, darkly it has a, comedic moments. Yeah, I
2: was gonna say I don't I wouldn't call it necessarily devastating because there is a dark comedic undertone throughout.
1: I think it's devastating in terms of you know the the, the what the family has experienced with the loss of their child and how, you know, I, th- I think how people are consistently manipulated and they choose almost to be manipulated. It's kind of a, a difficult movie to wrap my mind around. And I think, uh, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree hundred percent with, with, uh, our guest, um, Dan Solomon. Cause I mean, I, I listened back to his criticisms of the film back when we did the Noah Baumbach episode. And uh, he actually talked to the director themselves, and he had like far more questions um, about his intent in telling the story. And I, I certainly just thought, as I was watching the movie, as I was experiencing the movie, like, oh my god, this is an incredible true story. I think a lot of people should see this. But I wasn't getting that, you know, like those all the ideas and things that you're saying.
2: no no, no and I didn't I didn't, at first I didn't either, but I did suspect like I felt there was something there more at Oh play yeah, I in felt the there was something there. The two mirror, but I didn't I didn't think of it it didn't come become clear to me until I heard the word uh, confirmation bias, until I read that phrase in Michael D'Angelo's sort of write up. And then I go, Oh, okay, that makes more sense. Interesting. So but yeah, no, it's but it but even before that, like I just enjoyed every second of that film. I did just... enjoy
1: it. I, I, I thought it was one of the most compelling films I've seen all year. Yeah. Without question. And I'm going to go back and rewatch it. It's definitely something that I want to study. It's not like a film that I am dismissing in any way whatsoever. It's not a film that I'm writing off. It's not a film... And that's why I wanted to do a bonus episode. Yeah, yeah. Because I wanted to uncover the layers of it. I wanted to get out my own shovel and <laughs> dig in the backyard of this movie. Good.
2: Awesome. Well, that's my number two of the year.
1: Jim, holy shit, we're at the three the, and a half hour mark. We're at three and a half? All right. Yeah. Wow. All right.
2: What is the best movie of the year?
1: I think we should know that uh, I saw this movie earlier this year. And, um, I. It's, it's, you know, I. it's funny because imperfections often can be a strength, in my opinion. And seeing it a second time I I had no qualms with saying I think this is a perfect movie even if other people don't agree and it is Beasts of the Southern Wild uh huh and it is about a six year old girl who lives with her father in a southern delta community in New Orleans basically uh, right by the levee and a hurricane hits them and their lives are turned upside down and it's all about resilience and it's about a father and daughter having to um, deal with nature, both within themselves uh, on a personal level, and Mother Nature <laughs> on an environmental level. Uh, there's melting ice caps. There's actual real creatures that manifest themselves as beasts. Mm-hmm. I think they're prehistoric creatures maybe.
2: And how are the prehistoric creatures achieved? Are is cuz it's a independent film, it's not they're a not, big budget film, is they're it? Not CGI, that's yeah. for
1: sure. It, it reminded me in part like where the wild things are. Right. Interesting. Um but I mean they're metaphorical in a way too, I think. And at one point she goes in search of her Long Lost Mother, and it's one of my favorite moments I've seen in a movie in uh, many years. And uh, I don't know. I think uh, along with my number one of last year, Meek's Cut-Off, all about people having to face these dire circumstances and try to overcome... Are you saying you need a hug? <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> no, I think like the, the simplest stories are often the most interesting to me. Yeah. Where you just get two or three or four people... But it's also about a community too You learn about, you not in great detail But you learn about the people that they surround themselves with But it has This magical realism to it That From the opening credits you know if you're on board or not It is a Roman candle of a movie It is like a life affirming experience It is about The world we live in It is about family It's about uh, growing up When you're not ready to grow up Which is something I love thematically in a movie. Um, And it is really (laughs) about having to be uh, like very similar to what I just said. Basically having to become an adult when uh, you are not mentally or physically ready to do so. And I think that's something that I've had to do in my own lifetime. But it's also just a gloriously original movie. I've Mm -hmm. never seen anything like this movie and I'm not sure I ever will. Although I would, I would happily compare it to, uh, like, David Gordon Green's George Washington or Terrence Malick.
2: It's sort of vibe, you got from yeah. the trailers. Mm-hmm. I, this is definitely one of the biggest regrets of me of not catching it in the theaters. Uh-huh. Um, you it's,
1: know. uh... I don't know. I've never been... I haven't been this emotional over a movie since maybe Synecdoche, New York. Uh-huh. And, uh... It's, that's a much colder movie, Right. but I think it's also in a way just one of those, uh, you know. And when people see it, and if they know my life, they can understand why it's so effective. But I think it's a, I think it's just one. Of, I, it's a, this guy who made this is thirty years old. And I just want to kill him. I just like my God. I can't believe this fucking guy. You know. Yeah. I mean, he's got. One you of know the most how old ex-
2: you know you know how old Orson Welles was. Yeah,
1: I mean this. <laughs> the most incredible vision and you know i i could see people like you know okay it's maybe lower on their list or whatever but it is just simply like the the emotional depth the the meaning i've got after this movie it, it's unlike anything else i've experienced in a long time the lead performances this is one of the best child performances i've ever seen that's not hyperbole i really feel that way and uh i don't know i i can't I'm going to watch this movie once a year. Yeah. It's Beasts of the Southern Wild. Please see it. It's out on video. It's actually
2: right a now. movie I'm pretty glad I haven't read a lot about. I, yeah. I don't think I even watched the full trailer. Mm-hmm. I think I saw like screenshots from the trailer, um, particularly the girl holding the two sparklers or whatever, that one famous shot. That's sort of the takeaway shot, That yeah. the, the one screen cap that everyone uses, but uh, <laughs> it's a film I can't wait to watch. I, it's on DVD now, I think. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a, a
1: tidal wave of a movie, Patrick. Let it wash over you.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Put they, it on the poster. Hurricanes. Um, yeah, Warriors. no, I can't wait to watch it. I didn't get a chance to. Um,
1: it's okay. It's only this. 90 minutes, too, so that's nice. Mm-hmm. So, Gee, I wonder what number one is for Patrick. Yay! I'm excited to hear it.
2: The best movie of 2012 was Django Unchained.
1: Very close. Here... They were fighting. They were. I mean, it's hard because you get that high after walking out of the theater. That it's... Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I'm... Django
2: Unchained is wildly entertaining. Um, Christoph Waltz is kind of it. He's too. He's too similar to his character in Glorious Bastards to be like surprising. Like it's a similar game he's playing as far as the casual viciousness and the cat like and but just the the incredible politeness and the and the manners that he shows as he's a killer, but so it's a similar game, but he's amazing in it he's so funny um the first scene, which is very talky and long, is just riveting every scene in which he's just going on these long conversations the way he um you think that he's some kind of madman at first, and then you finally realize this game he's playing as far as goading people to hold him at gunpoint and then to explain calmly to them that he <laughs> is only fulfilling a bounty and he's acting within the law. Like one of the most amazing <laughs> things about this movie is so many westerns are about like just there are no laws and there are no rules and the sheriff is a drunk and he can't do anything so it's every man for himself. It's you know it's fascism his power is law. And but like until the like even the very end when you know the, this is obviously a story about a runaway slave trying to trying to free his wife like, the way they approach it is, oh, we need to figure out a way so they can sign papers so she's free. Like, it's not some badass movie where they they save her and then they, you know, ride a horse into the sunset for the north and to a free state. Like, they do everything by the book and it makes something everything so much more interesting. And it sort of plays a lot of the games that Tarantino plays in sort of the basement scene in Glorious Bastards where it's oh, just yeah. building up tension – just through uh, the just dinner, through the, fact the dinner that, scene just especially. through the fact that you know how everything is supposed to go yeah the dinner yeah. scene is very similar to that but you know how everything's supposed to go and then just one little monkey wrench can throw everything off kilter and it's really funny and it's really the action's amazing i think the gunfight at the end is as exciting as the sword fight at the end of kill bill volume 1 if not more um, i think i think i love the giant verhoven squibs i love yeah I love I love Jamie Foxx's performance. His character has such a strong arc, probably the strongest arc of any um, Tarantino character ever. I mean, not that his films are often about people who are very determined and set in their ways and the way they clash other people set in their ways, but Django is this character who goes from who like his discovery of agency and freedom and and discovery of who he is is so subtle and it's so layered and there's so many levels to it um, even to the point where uh, he you know you start questioning his relationship with Christoph Waltz character despite the fact that Christoph Waltz is a sort of a staunch abolitionist set up as the perfect white man as far as yeah. these go where That's he only very
1: showy which I like
2: yeah yeah but so all of that makes it just one of the mo- most entertaining movies of the year and it's and just like brilliant and interesting and funny and all the music choices where it's all of these modern singers over these beats that are are and production that's very spaghetti western inspired and you have you have Rick Ross rapping over uh sort of spaghetti western type music and you have John Legend singing a song that I didn't know it was John Legend I assumed it was some 70s deep cut um everything about this is just so brilliant and great and you have those smash zooms like you go on and on listing all the things that make quentin tarantino movies wonderful to watch but what makes this the best movie of the year is that it is the first quentin tarantino movie ever seen that is like genuinely like all of his movies are smart and all of his movies are about like film um and they're this film but this film i think is the most thoughtful of all of his movies um rightly so like a lot of people were very afraid, like, uh, Tarantino, he loves exploitation films, Uh, but how are you going to make a movie about, how's a white man going to make a movie about slavery. slavery that takes place, you know, during slavery and is, that, and isn't going to be weird and exploitative, like, even if it's just a movie about a runaway slave killing white men, like, that's such a weird and, un you know, uncouth way to treat slavery and it's not serious enough, and... A lot of people were questioning it. And I want to go on record. That's good. That's a good thing. There are a lot of people who were... Who are sort of papooing. Like, oh, how could it possibly be weird that he uses the N-word? It takes No, it, it does matter whether or not mm-hmm. he uses the N-word. It does matter how often he uses it and how he uses it. Agreed. Like, all of that controversy was good. Because that means people are being thoughtful about the movie. Um, now, where I come across... where Where I come down on the issue is that... It's incredibly thoughtful. This is the only movie about slavery I've ever seen that really tackles slavery as an institution, that tackles slave culture, um, to sort of appropriate a term from sort of modern uh, uh, sort of uh, social social injustice. Um, you know, when you're talking about like sort of rape culture and stuff like that. This is about slave culture. This is about – this isn't about – I feel like a lot of movies about slavery, they depict slavery as – it wasn't it horrible because they had to work these long hours on, in the hot weather and they were overworked and they worked to death and the trip over was just brutal. And it's all about the physical degradation. But it's not about the mental degradation. It's not about, it's not about the sort of horrible things that were done to them as people. It's not about the sort of... And, and the problem with those kinds of movies is if you're only talking about the actual aspects of slavery... Then, whenever you talk about Lincoln freeing the slaves, then it's done. Mm. Oh, he freed the slaves. Problem solved. When in reality, mental it's, anguish. It's it's fucking 2012, and the problem has not been solved. You God, know what no. I mean? Like
1: there's like, still ramifications.
2: So, and and because Tarantino takes on the mental side of that, he takes on the attitudes, the the fact that you know, like yes, slavery has ended for has been over, ended for over a hundred years, but the attitudes that created slavery have not and have lingered and that makes this film much more powerful than a lot of more dramatic more straightforward more prestigey, oscar bait kind of movies about this sort of thing there is incredibly layered it's um there's like a scene where django rides on a horse and all the slaves have never seen a black man on a horse and i think that scene is him that's him talking about black exploitation films that's to me, Django on the horse and all this and all the white people getting upset and all the black people being confused and and sort of thrilled by it, like that is why the Black Panthers organize people to go see Sweetbacks Sweet Sweetbacks Sweet Sweet badass song. Because like just an image of a black man in any kind of power, even though he's a servant, <laughs> like the the role yeah. he was pretending to be in that scene is as a servant, like an image of a black man in power is a very powerful thing, and those images have meaning, and those images have had meaning historically in America, um, so it's not black exploitation as in oh yeah like like he could have easily gone the route of yeah black people are cool and it'd be fucking cool if a cool black guy just killed a bunch of white people because fuck white people like he's very thoughtful about it he questions his own relationship to black exploitation in the relationship between Django and Christoph Waltz uh, Waltz's characters I can't remember but like. Because Christoph Waltz is comes off as this perfect white man who loves, who looks at black people as simply other humans and, and he wants to free all the slaves and he has no qualms about killing anyone who owns slaves because that's not a problem. But later on when Django actually shows agency outside of the plan that his character uh, sort of wants and he gets nervous, like, he shows his true colors. He fucks Django over when he... Uh, in the in the scene in the end which I'm not gonna spoil, but like like there's parts where it actually questions the idea of the narrative of a white man saving a black man, which this could have easily been. Hmm. Um there's there's ideas of with Samuel L. Jackson's character as this sort of step and fetch it character, the way that he his That's relationship with Leonardo DiCaprio this way his relationship with Leonardo DiCaprio mirrors Christopher yeah. and Django like he's Definitely. so this is Quentin Tarantino questioning not only you know not obviously anyone could say slavery is bad but like this is Django, this is quentin Tarantino questioning his own relationship with black culture and this is him questioning a lot of things and
1: i wish spike lee would realize that
2: well he, spike lee doesn't have like spike lee hasn't seen the film and he says he doesn't well, that, want to and that's, that's spike ridiculous. lee's right i know spike lee may goddamn do the right thing and he made red hook summer which is not a bad movie in itself this year it's not it's not great it's a mess but like there's a lot in red hook summer that's actually very great Hmm. Um but uh, uh but so I'm not you know Spike Lee also is old and I think anyone who's old and has accomplished a lot has a right to become an old a tired old like an, <laughs> an, an cranky old man so good for him um but but Tarantino in this film beyond just making first rate entertainment and when I say that I I'm someone who found Inglorious Bastards more interesting and more th- uh like I liked thinking about it more mm-hmm. than I liked watching it um, like this is really exciting and fun, and I don't think it's overlong the way some people do. Um, I don't like Tarantino's cameo; that's literally the only thing I don't like about it. And it has all this, these layers, and it has—it's a Hollywood film in which a black man um, has these, has all of these quests where he's not only trying to save his wife, he learns to love himself and he learns what being independent is. And it's—it's. It's, it's just a fucking incredible movie. Django Unchained is hands down the best movie of the year. Um, unless I see Beasts of the Southern Wild and I agree with Jim. But <laughs> yeah, see,
1: that's uh, that's why I wanted to save that for for Patrick cuz I he would be far more insightful. It's all yeah. Articulate it's it's, it's also the kind of movie that you where, see
2: it and you just want to talk to someone about it cuz it just blows your mind and like I can't stop thinking about it in a way that Say did not happen with the master, even though the master is supposedly a lot more artsy and a lot more provocative or whatever. This is the actual movie that has a lot of to would say. Would argue
1: with that with you on
2: that. One. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure, and that would be an interesting argument to have. And I'd love to see the master again and see But I'm just saying that this is not the movie I expected to walk away from thinking a lot about race relations in America. But it is the movie that I walked away from thinking a lot about race relations in America.
1: I did a little bit for sure, maybe not quite as much. I think I had. Like, I was just surprised about the dramatic weight behind the movie. Yeah, because I didn't get that as much with *Inglorious Bastards*. Uh, I well, *Inglorious* again.
2: *Inglorious*. I think this is the first film about his that isn't necessarily just about film. There's a layer of it. The way he he'll reference spaghetti westerns, he'll reference a lot of movies. Uh, Damon (laughs) Hous he said that he said that the moment um, in which. um, Broomhilda drops the glass and it shatters on the floor he said that that's an E.T. reference <laughs> <laughs> he said that it's shot the exact same way oh, as uh, D. Wallace by- discovering E.T. in that movie mm. like obviously there's a layer of that but it's thoughtful beyond that and it, I would agree and it does so in a way that is unpretentious and 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 perfectly integrated into the narrative um, and to the point where and I do like if you are a black like I mean, the the controversy of the N-word in this movie is I get it. If you are a black person and the N-word actually has, like, strong power because it's just really upsetting because it's a real thing, like, slavery is gone. But people using the N-word to oppress other, like, to oppress black people is not. So, mm-hmm. like, I, you know, I have friends who who are black and they couldn't, like, they just hated this movie because it was just, like, it's so unpleasant an experience. There is a luxury being a white person that I have to watch this movie and to not be upset, not like I, obviously it's upsetting in the fact that all racism and horrible oppression stuff is upsetting, but not to be personally affected by that. Like, uh, so I do want to say, like, I don't want to discredit people, especially empathy. black people yeah. who are offended by this movie, mm-hmm. because I think there's a lot in this movie that is very hard to stomach. But I do think there's not a single use of the n-word in this film that isn't done to implicate the uh, sort of villains. institution of racism, yeah. not just villains, but just the idea that in order for Django to become, to pass as someone, like, he has to degrade his word. own. Yeah, yeah, he has to use the word. He has to degrade his own race and stuff. And, like, he goes to great lengths. Uh, I
1: wasn't surprising. I mean, I was surprised by that.
2: Yeah, like, but there's not a single use of it. I mean, it is, I think he could have probably gotten the same point across without using as much. But there isn't a single use of it that I would say isn't used to implicate, um... The the institution of slavery, as opposed to say Pulp Fiction, which it appears for no goddamn reason.
1: Patrick, this is getting way too heavy.
2: Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I, I know I'm rambling on. I love, but it. I feel like a lot of other films I talked about, I sort of gave the short But you know what I else to...
1: surprised me about this movie? What's that? Someone has a cameo in. Oh yeah, Amber Chamberlain's the in tenant. Yeah, I, I
2: heard you squeal. I heard you squeal like a little eight year old boy when. Amber Tamlin looked out a window and you're like, oh boy, no wonder I
1: love her. She's so good at looking out windows. That wasn't going to be the response I was about to give, but okay. Oh, what were you going to say? You're like, aw, Amber Tamlin was Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I thought you were going to say it was a different cameo. Anyway, yeah, Django Unchained, best move of the year. And that's 2012. I think we covered it.
1: I think we're done. I think we're done. You know what would be perfect? Is if... um, Everybody downloads the clip show because the first thing they're going to hear. Yeah, what's that? Our review of Inglorious Bastards because that's the first thing we ever recorded oh, that's together. Right. That's right. We
2: saw Inglorious Bastards together, and you wanted to record us talking about it. Didn't go so well. I don't remember, but you're about to find
1: out. Yeah, 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 went. yeah.
2: We're, by the way, we're 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 in a marathon. You think this episode's long? We are have another podcast to record right now. We're in a marathon.
1: It's got to be, sh- session. It's gotta, but, it's gotta be an hour and a half at the yeah, most.
2: Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so that's 2012. Thank you, everybody.
1: Thank you so much for all the wonderful feedback. Thank yeah. you for a wonderful year. Thank you, Patrick. This was
2: really the year that I felt like this podcast sort of found its feet. Definitely. And, yeah, thank you, Jim.
1: Yeah, it's been great.
2: I'm Can't really, wait for another year. I've really enjoyed doing this with you. I've really enjoyed all you guys. Yeah. Like, <laughs> really, I really don't want to cry, but, yeah, no, I really appreciate I've enjoyed all the guests everybody. we've
1: had, all the emails we've gotten, all the... Uh, wonderful support we've had and the Facebook Mm -hmm. uh, likes and the iTunes comments. Everything's been wonderful. We can't thank you enough. We're really looking forward to the next uh, year of podcasting, starting with uh, the Coen Brothers episode coming up in two weeks. It's going to be a great way to start off the official directors uh, that we're covering in the new year.
2: Yep. And uh, the way they end this episode, I think... I want to share with you guys my favorite song of 2012. Please do. Uh, I think a lot of people uh, heard Kendrick Lamar's album, Good Kid, Mad City. Which Which is is great. It's a great album. I won't deny that.
1: I'm not the biggest rap guy in the world. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, I love uh,
2: it. I think think technically Rick Ross is the biggest rap guy in the world. (laughs) That's a fat (laughs) joke. Okay. Um, But I don't think many people heard Kendrick Lamar's single... Uh, before that he released it on the internet It's called uh, Cartoons and Serial And it's the same game where it's sort of playing the idea Of the lots of innocence Through sort of the gangster world he lives in um, But it's it's Fucking incredible It has Gunplay, who's one of my favorite rappers ever On it um, And it has the following line Which I think is the best line of any song uh, Or not following lines I should say the, Which is the sort of the best string of syllables To happen in music uh, in 2012 it's a, the line uh, Hope another homicide Don't numb you And none do Things we'll never learn soon In an era When we want to earn soon That's an era You can smell it in the air Everybody really doomed
1: Oh nice Like
2: how the fuck Do you think of that Kendrick Lamar's a genius Anyway I Cartoons agree. and cereal Enjoy it um, Go ahead and download it We'll see it. you for the clip show and We'll see you for the clip show And I run it And I run it And I run it yeah. And I I run
0: it yeah. That's that's ironic yeah, yeah, yeah. I run it. Yeah, yeah. So all of my wounds Hear my tears All of my tunes, Let my life loose in this booth Just for you Motherfucker hope y'all amused And I run it yeah, yeah, yeah. And I run it yeah, yeah, yeah. And I run it And I run it That's ironic You're fired by situation More the liberation And later
6: Popular pie plant
4: pictured here. (laughs) Wiley
3: coyote.
0: Make a nigga, nigga just wanna ride. Reminisce when I have the morning appetite. Applejack and after that I hit the TV guide. And a maniac, the only thing that give me peace of mind. I'm a maniac when him and at the enemy that lie. Tell a story that I never at 25. Not to worry, heavy worry over and See you furry young. That's a covenant I put on every tribe. Ain't nobody go tie your shoe. Nobody go abide by your rule. Nobody horn your gun. How come your tongue say killer, then kill my mood? like speed living in the world, you know. Little hoe me feeling like a live wire. Better I put some New tires on a lightning bolt, till I reckon to a pole like a right to vote. I ain't from the bottom of the jungle, living in the bottom of the food chain. When you get a new chain, nigga, take it from you. A new name, one stripe, and you a secret look alike.
3: Hope another homicide don't numb me.